I will just say this. My, my Sixers are coming on. I'm going to be a Sixers fan. I like this young team. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, the <laughs> unfortunate <laughs> that they're doing well? No, so the the Milwaukee Bucks have had twenty years of just incompetent ownership and bad bad. So the big problem with the Bucks, in a, in a nutshell, is a focusing too much on like the near term and not enough on like having a long term plan. Like that's been it's, it's always what's what's next, what's next, what's optimized for this coming year, and you end up making decisions and doing stuff so you're not building for the future. And the problem is they they have this superstar, and it's been clear he's going to be a superstar for a while. And and it's like, well, finally, can we actually build for the future instead of always building for next year? And, of course, over the last three summers, that hasn't really happened. And then this past summer, our GM job opened for, for various complicated reasons. And it, we had this terrible process with ownership fighting with each other. And, also, and we ended up promoting, like, this, to, this, like, random guy who'd been in the front office for, like, 10 years in the middle, in, who'd been there for all kinds of bad decisions. And, you know, he's not the GM. And, and all that aside, at the press conference, the owner who, who, uh, who, who hired him, um, whether or not he had the agreement with the other owners is questionable, which goes back to the team's kind of inherent dysfunction. But he said something to the effect of, well, those guys in Philadelphia talk about the process. Well, what we care about here is results. Mm. And it was oh, like it was painful because that's always been the problem with the Bucks is focusing on near-term results and not thinking about the process. And the whole point of what Philadelphia has gone through the past few years is to have be in this position where they have multiple, like, potential stars going forward and and then hilariously just to kind of bring it home they now have a better record and a better point differential than the bucks this year so if you care about results then you, it's also not so great and it's, it's not looking great going forward so i mean so you know the, the reason i go uh is because the sixers and the celtics are the queer sort of and bucks are kind of the queer class of the eastern conference once lebron leaves and both those teams are in a much better place than the Bucks are because they focus on process and not results. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> it's it's frustrating. But we have Giannis, and he's amazing, and uh, and so we'll just you know, and as always, we'll just have to cross our fingers and hope for the best because uh, there's not there, there there's not a process that's that's easy to see. Uh, Sixers are winning. Sixers have a strange history where the Sixers, their, their quote-unquote process was to purposefully lose. His, I mean, this is going to sound crazy to people in Europe who, who maybe aren't familiar with U.S. sports and especially the NBA. But it was the Sixers decided it was to their strategic benefit to lose as many games possible for about three or four years to rack up high draft picks. And then even as they were accumulating those draft picks, lose until they felt like they had a good enough team to try to start winning. And it was no, that's what's that's exactly what I mean. The thing with basketball is in basketball, having a great having great players matters more than any other sport because there's there's only five players on the court and the the level of differentiation like there's a lot of like sort of replacement level players and there's a fair number of like, you know, decent guys. But the guys that actually matter that actually move the needle, there's like five or six of them in the week. Or you know, maybe ten at most, and and so to you have to have at least one to win. Like the history of the NBA shows that, and you probably have to have two. And the thing with the NBA is the number of teams that have won championships is remarkably limited. Like only about half the team has ever won. Period. Right. And I think five of the teams account for seventy percent of the championships. And it's because they've had the best players, and you know the Lakers, the Bulls, the the Celtics, and and, and the Warriors. Uh, and the problem is. 
once you have the best players, you have the best players for like, you know, seven to eight years and, and you're going to rack up, rack up titles. And it's, it's a very, it's an inherently unbalanced sport just because the best player matters so much more than in any other sport. Yep. Um, it's funny. I don't know if I mean you're really, really tuned into the NBA, so you might be aware of this. But the Sixers right now, even though they're still not really a top tier team, they're just a winning team with with their best years ahead of them. A winning team with young players with their best years ahead of them. The Philadelphia Seventy Sixers right now are a tougher ticket and play before a fuller house than any previous Sixers team ever, including the Iverson era teams and the the one that's most surprising is the the absolutely great uh dr j era teams from the early 80s yeah. well it's funny because i it's almost a re- i think it's going to be a repeat of the 80s where if you if you recall back the celtics won the most but the sixers beat them sometimes and then the bucks always lost in the second round of the playoffs to one of those two teams yeah. and it, it's it's shaping up to be like a direct replay of the 80s which is very depressing i mean i i actually do think the bucks will have the best player of all three teams but again, the, it's the it's the supporting cast, and and both the Celtics and the Sixers are shaping up to have multiple top players in the way you know the the, the Bucks are not, and yeah, and that's the other thing with the NBA that's really tricky is the NBA because of the salary cap and contracts are are, are guaranteed. You to get to line up the salaries is really difficult because what happens is once your best player on their rookie deal, so the NBA is all about you have to get excess value. You get excess value by having rookies because there's a pay scale, and so you have to get a rookie that produces above his pay scale and max guys because there's max contracts. The best players are worth so much more than their max contract, and so there, there's there. But the problem is all those guys in the middle, guys who aren't on rookie deals and who aren't max players, you will at best pay them what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is that where teams get in trouble, like the Bucs, is they pay too many guys what they're worth or overpay them, and, and, and they don't have enough on those two extremes where they're generating excess value. And so part of the trick of the whole tanking, why you want to take multiple years in a row, is you want to have all these guys in the same sort of the same level as far as income goes. Cause the other thing is once you have a great player, you can't get another great player because one, you don't have the space and, and great players rarely become available in free agency until like their 10th year in the season when they're declining. And, and, and two, they're, you're too good to get a good draft pick. And so you have to like, you, the timing is really, really tricky. It really does take a five to 10 year plan to build a team to sort of like have one just happen. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. Right. Which is exactly how the NFL works. Our football league where, that you know, the Atlanta Falcons are struggling. They were in the Super Bowl last year, and every year there's always like one or two teams in the playoffs who who were like awful the year before, but they just make one or two of the right moves in the off season. And anyway, anyway, that's enough sports. We got real stuff to talk about. Uh, I I, <laughs> I got follow up though. I have follow up from previous episodes. This is important stuff. So uh, this is uh, episode 206, episode 203. So three episodes ago, uh, Serenity Caldwell was on. And I was talking about how I ran into, to me, the crazily arbitrarily, arbitrary limit of 100 VIPs in Apple Mail. Because my system of getting notifications for email is that I don't want any notifications, but then there's the people who I do, and then I just make them a VIP. And lo and behold, a few weeks ago, I got an error when I tried to add somebody as a VIP that says you're only allowed to have 100 which seems so, I don't know if you listen to the show, but it just seems so crazily obvious that uh, when somebody was engineering the VIP feature, they were like, well, we might as well have a limit. I don't know what, 100? Okay, 100. If VIPs is uh, 100, then uh, give an error. (laughs) 
It seems so stupid. And I complained about the fact, anyway, this is the follow-up aspect. I complained about the fact that I couldn't find a way to, um, I could not find a way to manage my VIPs other than like randomly going through one by one and trying to find VIPs and unstar the star. But it turns out there are ways to manage your VIPs. The other problem I had is I tried to do it in context because I would, I thought of VIPs as something related to context, but it's not context. It's only in mail. So on Mac, if you go to the VIPs magic mailbox and toggle the disclosure triangle to the next of it, it will list all of your VIPs one by one. And then you can, uh, control click on any one of them and remove from VIPs. So there's no way to select, uh, I don't think. Uh, actually, you can select multiple and delete at once. And then on iOS, you go to do your VIPs and there's a little uh, I and a circle button, the info button, and then you can tap that button and it will, sh again, show you a list of VIPs and you can manage them from there. So now I, I've I've kept forgetting to... to uh, Talk about this. Yeah, the, I, I just uh, what I what I do is anyone who is important to hear from, I connect to them on some sort of messaging platform, and that's the way to reach me. So if you if you, and that's actually just, true for me too. Just, I mean, when's the last time you and I sent email to each other? I, I get a daily email from you, but it's a newsletter. <laughs> but right. you and I, if you and I communicated by email, I would have I would have said, hey, why don't you be on my show next week? And then like in December, you'd be like, oh shit. <laughs> Shit, I missed it. I How about next week? And then like uh, January would come and you'd be like, <laughs> what the hell happened? I thought he wanted me on a show. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's, that's my, it's so true. That's my I mean, do, Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it's funny because back when I first, you know, was when I was, wasn't doing strategy, I, I think it was MG Siegler would just always complain about email on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just so freaking annoying. Yep. Like, okay, we get it. You get a lot of, you get a lot of email. And, and now that I get a lot of email, I'm like, I, one, I, I can understand why he was complaining so much because it's really overwhelming. It, it, I mean, just what, once you get it at a certain volume, it's, it's not engineered for, for sort of high, because <laughs> you don't have any, it, it's an asynchronous relationship and you have no control over, over what comes in. So I can relate, but I kind of refuse to complain about it because I was so grumpy about him complaining about it. And I, I would feel totally uh, disingenuous to to complain about it now. So so lips lips sealed. Yeah. Uh, Except I just complained about it. All right. Somebody else wrote in. Uh Gerhelm Rambo, I, and I, I, I know I'm butchering his name, and I'm sorry I, I mispronounce everybody's name. I, I even mispronounce Ben Thompson's name, probably. Um, but he's this is a guy who's who's one of the top iOS uh, sort of backwards engineers out there operating. He's sort of uh, out there with Stephen Trout and Smith. Um, he confirmed on Twitter the speculation I had that the iOS calculator app is written in Swift now, along with, I think, a couple of the other sort of you. Uh, like widgety type apps like uh, stocks and stuff like that. So Apple apps actually is in iOS 11 using Swift. Um, but it's pr probably true that rewriting it in Swift was what led to the unfortunate type 1 plus 2 plus 3 quickly and you end up with the uh, 24 bug. Um, yeah, the, the, the iOS 11 is, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's always hard to remember like it does seem like every year it's like oh this is the worst update ever, uh, so I, I'm a little hesitant to you know because to look back and look back fondly on something that may not have been as fun. But yeah, it's been it's been a I mean battery life has been the biggest thing for me. Just mm. it, it just obliterated battery life. Uh, but also on the, the phone, the, on, you're talking 
You're yeah, talking, on yeah. the phone. On, yeah. On, on, on my on my iPhone seven, yeah. and then the the calculator thing was weird. The one that's really gotten me was uh, I was using the timer, and the timer would go off or would finish, and then like twenty seconds later the notification would come. And I noticed this because I, I <laughs> and the reason the reason it's a problem is because I I like to watch basketball games on the treadmill. I mean, uh, and so I have the big iPad set up on the treadmill, and I, and I have my phone off to the side. And maybe because the phone's busy, because it's also I'm using uh, what's the what's the word? We use the phone as for the internet um, tethering. tethering. Yeah, it, but what happened was I would be doing like intervals on on like the treadmill, and the problem was I was using the timer, and the interval would end. And then I would change the speed of the treadmill. And then like 15 seconds later, 20 seconds later, I had already restarted the timer for the new interval. And then the notification would come in. I have to like grab my phone and turn the notification off. And it was absolutely bizarre. And it's interesting. I don't know. So one, that's really weird. Two, on the on ATP a few weeks ago, uh, Casey was talking about that he was getting notifications on his watch for a local notification, even though he wasn't connected to his I, phone. I, I heard that, and I was like, wait a minute. Is that true for me, too? I thought maybe it was, and then, I, and then ever since that episode of ATP, it's never happened to me again, and, and I... I I don't know what happened, but I do remember yeah, so that. I don't, I don't know. So I, 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 like, I don't understand how a phone could take 25 seconds or 20 seconds or however long it is to have a local notification. So I'm, I'm actually really curious if there is something being sent up to the cloud and, and the delay is, you know, that it's, be, it's being sent up to, to Apple's notification service and it's coming back down, even though it's local notification. And there's, and there's some sort of, because I'm far away, generally stuff's more laggy for me in general. Uh, I don't think Apple, Apple doesn't have a data center here in Taiwan. Yeah, um, I think you're right. And yeah. so I don't know, it, it, it might, it might confirm Casey's hypothesis and would explain why it's happening. But from a user experience perspective, it's, it's abysmal. It's, it's like, uh, how can that? How can that be? How can that be? How you experience a timer? Right. I mean, a timer is like the most basic functionality of like a computer. All right, I've got an anecdote to share from a, a little birdie who listens to the show. Uh, just wanted to. Here's an email I got. Just wanted to share an anecdote that has made me laugh in recent days. Back in, uh, I'm just going to say a couple of a handful of years ago, uh, this this guy was asked to interview for a QA job at Apple. He was going to be a QA engineer. At Apple. Quality assurance. Yep. And he had 10 interviews, which is a lot. He had 10 interviews. And in two out of the 10 interviews, he was, I was at, I'll read from his email. I was asked how I would QA the calculator app. During the second one, the interviewer gave examples of what he'd do, including repetitive entry and sequential entry. The examples he used were one plus one plus one plus one and one plus two plus three. The fact that this bug got into iOS 11 is ridiculous because it's literally what seemed like a standard screening question for QA positions at Apple. Yikes. My, th my thanks to this little birdie for sharing this anecdote and permitting me um, permitting me to share it here. And I'll just say this for all those of you who are listening. I, I wrote back to this to this listener of the show and asked, I thanked him for the email and I asked him if I could uh, if I could share it here stripping the identifying details, you know. So anybody out there who's thinking about selling me, sending me similar stories, if you don't want me to share them, you can, of course, trust me not to. But this one I thought was pretty, 
pretty bad. Yeah, the, it's funny the the, the sh- like sharing or not sharing stuff. Like it, it, it when I first started Shatekery, it was so jarring when I'd be talking to someone and say, "Oh, by the way, this is off the record," and I'd be like, "Of course, this is off the record." Yeah, but I'm like, "Oh yeah, I guess <laughs> like I guess I'm a quote unquote media member now." But it's it's interesting. I always tell them like I'm not a reporter, right? Like so for, for especially for what I do, there's occasionally times I do know stuff and I like I don't. I actually almost don't like knowing it because then, uh, like, it, it obviously will shade what I write. But I, I almost like the purity of like I'm just re- I'm reacting the same thing you are. But even then, it's like I, I don't want to be known as being someone that breaks news. And for me, getting the you know you know just talk like I would. My presumption is off the record just because that's not what I do. Uh, but it, it, it is always the um, it's something that I have to remember to tell people. Yeah, don't don't worry. You know, it's it's all good. And it's like it's not like there's anything scandalous going on. It's just like to your point. Sometimes, you know, usually it's in response to something I write. It's like, well, you know, there's a little more a little more color to this. I mean, what I write is based on on my own analysis. Right. And then sometimes people will respond to that. I'm not writing what people sort of leak to me or whatever. Right. Well, uh, for example, I it, it's, it's just something that, that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm a not, weird ac- thing. I'm not accusing anybody who is a quote, you know, puts on their business card that they're a reporter of ever doing this, but I know it happens sometimes where, so for example, this email that I got, uh, didn't stay anything like this is off the record. It just was an email from somebody who shared the email and, you know, somebody who, who, operated under the principle that anything was on the record by default might uh read the person's name on the air you know and i i would never do that and i certainly wouldn't do it for somebody at at a low level but i wouldn't want to do it for somebody at an executive level either i i I, yeah and and i have no objection to like reporters doing that i mean i think it it, it, like that that whole thing happened with like steve bannon and emailing the guy at at, at the new york or ryan lisa but like that that's like if you're a if you're a high level political operative and you're dealing with a national political reporter, like it, it's quite clearly the rules of the game that right. everything's on the record unless explicitly, explicitly otherwise. Right. And, and, and so it's funny. It's just weird. It was always weird to me to like fall in. Like I kind of, some people will, will then put me there. I'm like, right. well, am I a, like, I'm in the media, but I don't really think of myself as a reporter at all. And so for me, the ground rules for me are different. Uh, that's not to say the ground rules are wrong, but I don't know. It, this is totally inside baseball, right. but it, it's, it's no, something that, that uh, it reminded me of. It, 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 I don't know. To me, to me, it, it's like the, the traditional media and the reporting rules are a little on the gotcha side where it's sort of like by it, it, it always defaults to every conversation defaults to on the record until the subject flips the switch and says, this is off the record. Um, Whereas I prefer to operate where everything defaults to a neutral position, where if there's any chance that what we're about to discuss might be professionally interesting to me or newsworthy in any way, let's stop and clarify what what's going on here. Let's not even, you know, before you even tell me anything, let's clarify this is on or off the record. I don't like the idea that it always defaults to on the record until you say otherwise. It just seems, yeah, it's, it, it just seems well, I, I'm just not comfortable with it personally. Right. And again, I, I can understand it from a more sort of reporter perspective. Like that's right. what that's what they do. Uh, but, you know, the, the implicit trade off is, you know, are you actually getting genuine answers right. versus are you getting sort of PR PR boilerplate? Right. And on the flip side, the sort of like if you want to take the opposite view, it's like, are you carrying water for whoever it might be versus being, you know, objective and, and honest with your readers and transparent. And so it's very easy. You can critique either side, depending on, on what perspective you want to take. All right. Let me take a break here. It's a good time as any to thank our first sponsor and our good friends at Casper. 
Casper is the sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Uh, Look, my family loves their Casper mattresses. I've said it before. I will say it again. Um, We come home from like a nice vacation at a nice hotel where they have nice beds. And instead of saying, oh, man, my bed isn't isn't like that in a a nice hotel, uh, my son comes home and jumps in his bed and says, I'm so glad to be back in my bed. Really is true. Um, uh, At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans and they're engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. And they're also designed to get your body heat away from the mattress so that you have a nice cool sleep and you don't get the, don't get the night sweats. Uh, look, you spend one third of your life sleeping. I spend quite a bit more than one third of my life sleeping. So you should be comfortable. I know it's a canard. It's, it's a cliche that because you spend quote unquote one third of your life sleeping, you should spend a lot of money, you know, spend good money on, on a good mattress and good pillows and good sheets and stuff like that. But it's true. It really is true. And I think that this idea, I think the idea some people have that, well, you're asleep. So who cares if you're sleeping on scratchy sheets and a, and a rickety old mattress, you'll, you feel miserable in the morning just because you're sleeping doesn't mean you're not enjoying it. Um, Look, Casper mattresses provide all the support the human body needs in the right places. Casper's mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface. Their breathable design helps you sleep cool, regulate your body temperature throughout the night, and they're designed, developed, and assembled right here in the U.S. They've got over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper's own website, Amazon, and Google. Casper's becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Um, look, here's the thing. You, you don't know what it feels like. If you haven't seen one before, you don't know if, if I'm telling you the truth. Or you, know, you don't know if your personal taste in a mattress matches what mine do. They've got a no-hassle return policy. This is the thing. This is true. This is absolutely true. This isn't some kind of thing like when you try to cancel your cable and the guy won't let you off the phone and he's trying to keep you on board or whatever. They have a 100-night sleep thing. If you're not happy after three months, just call them up or go to the website. If you don't want to call, go to the website, say, I, I want to return. They'll schedule a pickup. They'll come get the mattress out of your house and uh, give you all your money back. Uh, and that's cool because I'll tell you what, the, the mattresses would be a lot harder to get out of your house than to get in because they ship it in, in this vacuum sealed. Uh, it doesn't matter what size or what type of mattress you get. It comes in this little box like a, like they call it a how do they do that sized box. It really is kind of amazing. Um, and they have free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. It's only in the U.S. and Canada. Where do you go to find out more and buy your mattress? Go to casper.com slash the talk show. Casper.com slash the talk show. One of my favorite sponsors. I can't believe I'm selling mattresses. So I forgot to tell this story. I had Jim Dalrymple on last week and we were both, it was like the day after the iPhone embargo dropped. And so we had a sort of a, a first impressions of the iPhone 10 uh, show. I completely forgot to tell the story that the day before on Monday, uh, so last we recorded last Tuesday and that's when the embargo dropped on Monday morning or around Monday around noon, I had a, a briefing in New York city with Apple where they were going to give me my, my iPhone 10 review unit. And I take the Amtrak, uh, up to New York. Do you know this? Uh, you know this story, right? You know what I'm going to tell you. 
I do. I get up. I, I saw your saw your picture. I, I, I get up you, it, it, in New York. Well, most places, most cities that I've been to, the train station is sort of underground. You have to go up like a flight of stairs or an escalator or something like that. So I come up the escalator into Penn Station. And immediately right there uh, at the top of my, uh, they don't call them terminals. I forget what they call them. Track right at the top of my, the exit for, for my track, um, is Bill de Blasio, the, the mayor of New York city, who was at the time running for reelection, uh, and a handful of security seemed like security people and a handful of media people too. Not a big crowd, but there he is. And you can't miss him because Bill de Blasio is about, I think he's around six, five, six, six, maybe taller. Um, but there's, he's surrounded by people, but you see his head sticking above them. There's no missing it. And I thought, well, that's something you don't see every day. I've never seen the mayor of New York in Penn Station. And then it occurred to me, like, well, I wonder what he's waiting for. And I turn around, and literally, like, like five people behind me on the escalator is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and he, he didn't seem to have any kind of uh, – he, he had people with him, but it didn't seem like he had security. Uh, and, and I realized, oh, there, there's probably for de Blasio's reelection campaign, he's drumming up support. He's got Bernie Sanders up in New York to, uh, um, you know, I guess have some kind of event. But I had, I had to get, I had to get downtown to where Apple has, has these events. Um, they bought, you know, the Apple has bought some sort of mansion down in, in, uh, uh, downtown Manhattan and, and. It's really magnificent, but they have it just to hold media events. And I guess, I don't know what else they do throughout the year, but it's really quite a thing. Uh, but it's, I don't know, a 20-minute subway ride. Uh, so I quick I, 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 I go there infrequently enough that I never remember how to get there. So I bring up Apple Maps on my phone and do the transit thing. And the transit thing tells me I can either take the A train or the C train. And this is where Apple Maps is maybe, I don't know, maybe not as good. Maybe I shouldn't use it. But it, Apple Maps seemed to suggest to me that either train would be just as good. And I figured out now that the A train is actually better. Um, it takes uh, four stops to get to where you go, whereas the C train stops a couple more times. You get like six stops. So A train's the way to go. But I just randomly picked A train for that trip because I thought, I what's six of one, half a dozen of the other. So anyway, I head towards the A train. I'm not quite, sh I'm not quite sure where I'm going. I, I think I obviously took some kind of circuitous route <laughs> because by the time I got to the platform for the A train, there's de Blasio and Sanders standing there already. I, I, so presumably Bill de Blasio's people know, <laughs> know, know their way to Penn. They know the subway better than you Well, do. at least they know Penn Station. Penn Station is meandering where without ever leaving or stepping above ground, you can. There, there's an entire train station for Amtrak for the Eastern Corridor. There's an entire train station for New Jersey Transit, which is commuter trains that, that go through New York and, and New Jersey, but are completely unrelated to Amtrak. Um, and then there's a, the, the also the, at least five of the subway lines, maybe more, but at least five of the subway lines uh, stop underground at Penn Station. So I, I obviously took the wrong way because I passed them before I left them before they greeted each other. And by the time I got up there, there they were again. Um, and so I figured, what the hell? This time I'm not going to try to avoid them. And I, I squeezed into the car uh, with Bernie Sanders and, and Bill de Blasio and took a picture. I posted to Instagram where I was just a couple feet away from Bernie. And he was he was looking at me smiling. It's pretty cool. Yeah, he's gritty. He's gritting. Like so, did he? He knew you were taking his picture. Yeah, I think so. It it seems like it. I took a bunch, and it, this that this is my the lesson to be learned from this is a take the train. You never know what's going to happen. But B, it's the old adage about photography where just take a bunch of photos. Take a bunch because I took uh, 
I, I probably should have taken more, but I took about eight photos trying to get a picture of Bernie. Um, and when I went back and looked through them, when it was all over, there was only one of them that was any good, but it was great. And the other yeah. ones, no, it's a- the other ones, I got, like the first three or four, if I had stopped, it was sort of like you would have had to take my word that that's Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like Bill, you could yeah. see de Blasio because he's so tall, but the white haired man next to him, you'd have to take my word that that was Bernie Sanders. You couldn't even see his face. What's funny is uh, in, in the show notes here, you have this link to uh, a, a New York Post article about the trip. Yeah. <laughs> and and is the, is the, is the, I just have to, Sanders has this thing. Uh, uh, he's talking about the subway. When you ride in the subway, he's like he's he was complaining about the subway. When you ride in the subway, you should ride in comfort. You should ride in a subway car where you can sit and where you know where the train is coming. That's not a radical idea. It exists around the world. And uh, I mean, I, I'm all for the subways being better and American infrastructure uh, improving. But this picture, it it looks very crowded uh, in that subway car, and I'd imagine it's very crowded. It is like half as crowded as like a Tokyo subway. Oh, car. I've seen it. I mean, I, yeah. Or I, I mean, I type it's pretty crowded too. But I mean, Tokyo is insane. If you ever been <laughs> on these, like, and and uh, and their infrastructure is the Japan Japanese infrastructure is unbelievable. It's incredible, and all the trains are on time, famously. But <laughs> believe me, you are not getting a, a place to sit. Like, so I, I, I'm on board with some of the complaints, but that is not a valid complaint. Even looking at this picture, which yeah. looks very crowded, and relative to the rest of the world, is not crowded at all. Yeah. <laughs> anyway it was a very very exciting trip before i even got the iphone 10 <laughs> uh so it's funny we we, you, we talked about doing the uh doing the podcast last week and i yeah. told you that i was not going to have an iphone 10 because my order was delayed uh i over the weekend i came across a a opportunity to acquire one sooner than i might have otherwise for a for a reasonable uh uh a reasonable surcharge that was it was honestly it's very very small uh, less than a hundred dollars and uh so I, I got one and i had no actually intention of writing about apple or the iphone this week but i have to say uh and you mentioned this when you when you first got it and i i kind of not, not sure i completely believed you i i've i was pretty i was pretty and continue to be pretty blown away by it and and maybe just be in part because I, i've always been a little skeptical of it from the beginning in part because that button seems so key and then also the whole pr thing which i i know you've talked about but it was so bizarre like yeah. are they trying to hide something like maybe it's just because they my expectations had been sufficiently ratcheted down that it's been a it's been a it's been an experience with a new apple product that that ex, uh, except for airpods i feel like i haven't had in a in a long time yeah it almost seems like and there have been a couple of good podcasts talking about the the new pr strategy of not uh starting the pr blitz with a bunch of embargoed reviews from well-known reviewers of technical products and doing something else um and I think that the strategy actually works both ways. I think if you think about it, where if they do feel like they have something to hide, like let's say a face ID actually was, they they expected like, oh my God, they're going to kill us over the way this works. Then they better not seed review units first and get something else to get the media started first. But then if it is actually good, if there's nothing to hide, which I think is truly the case. I, and again, we can get into some of these details. There's There are things to complain about, but nothing that you would make you say, I don't love this phone. Um. They're so confident in that case that they don't have to they don't have to worry if people think that they didn't see reviews early because they have something to hide because they they know that the quality of product is going to win out in the end anyway. Like either way, they can do they can do it the same way. 
Yeah, I mean the whole thing. I think you you mentioned on Daring Fireball that uh, I sorry, I'm not sure if you talked about it on the on the on the podcast earlier, but that they were they felt burned by the by the watch reviews yeah. and focusing on on that bug. I mean, the the problem with that is one like I can you you mentioned there's like a perfect storm about how that bug happened, but at the end of the day, they shipped a really bad bug. Yeah. Like it, it it is the fact that the early press around the LTE Apple Watch was about a bug is Apple's fault. It's right. not the press's fault. Like they if you don't want to have that sort of coverage, don't ship that sort of bug. And if you didn't cover that bug because your QA w- was a part of it, like why is the QA like that? Well, because Apple is so secretive in part because of, of like they, there wasn't a no one was bringing in like the normal consumer use case and where normal people could connect to like Starbucks Wi-Fi all the time. And that's on Apple. That's Apple's fault that that happened. And the fact that they seem appeared to have decided the lesson to take away is to kind of lash out against the, the tech press. I mean, in a passive aggressive sort of way to me, is it's 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 almost more disturbing than the fact that they they had this weird like the, if they want to change their strategy, that's fine. And I actually wrote a thing saying like, yeah, I think it's great. I love. I think the vloggers are awesome. I love the idea that. I mean, think about it. it. It's it's funny because you were the kind of the one guy that spoke out about like the strategy, like what's going on here. And you're, if anything, you are actually much closer to the vloggers than anyone else because you're a right. one man sort of show that's built your own brand by virtue of the internet. The internet makes it possible for you to do what you do. Whereas you go back to the original iPhone, the reason they got those reviews. Units is first and foremost because of the publications they work for. And even going forward, like I, I think Neil Patel is a, a great reviewer, and I thought his iPhone video review was was excellent uh, and, and definitely worth watching. But at the end of the day, if, if it was just Neil Patel and he didn't work for The Verge, which to his credit, he has built into a meaningful brand. But if he didn't have that publication brand attached to him, it's still like sort of a publication sort of thing. Whereas these YouTube guys, like they're coming up from nothing, right? right. They're, they're literally just throwing up videos on YouTube and building an audience in the most sort of organic way possible. And, and to see those kind of folks be rewarded with this sort of attention to me it's very like sort of gratifying as someone in a similar situation uh and so to me it's it's great that they did this but to have this uh, w- w- the right hand is doing this cool thing and the left hand is kind of like doing this <laughs> this sort of like vindictive sort of well screw you guys we'll give you you know 12 hours with the phone uh is it's it's unfortunate and i think it's um I think a little more introspection on Apple side would have been a better would have been a better <laughs> would have been a better response to the the watch thing. Um, part of it, I was uh, I, I had the wrong impression at first, um, and if I had anything uh, to take anything back, it would be some of the YouTube some of the snide comments I made about the re- YouTube reviews. I might have done differently because I I I was under the impression that they'd had the phone for a couple of days. And this is what they came up with. But really what they did was the equivalent of a second round of the hands-on area after the event. And and in fact, all of those videos, the ones that came out on Monday, um, the day before like Panzerino's full review dropped and the the goofy 10-hour period that, that the rest of us got to review the phone dropped, um, they were all shot at that uh at that 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 the, i was gonna say the place it, you went to yeah, the place call. i went to in new york it it, it was a, i think it used to be a home it's i don't think anybody lives there now but it's it's hard to describe but it's sort of like a i don't know some kind of just this sort of mansion that could only exist in manhattan 
you know, like it wouldn't, right. you wouldn't call it a mansion in the countryside, but in terms of square footage and the beautiful sunlight and everything. But if you look around at those videos, you can get a sense of the, I think the top two floors of that building that Apple now owns, or I don't know if they own the whole building. They might only own, um, top no it makes top sense three floors. yeah i mean like if you're if you're if you if you're buying a mansion in new york you're buying a condo on like the the, the top of right. a, a but top it, of if a, you watch those videos again and i'll put the links in the show notes you can see actually which i didn't pick up on at first um because i was trying to concentrate at first on what these people said about the iphone 10 but if you look at the videos you can see that they were all shot in the same place Right. And I also do think, and it's, I'm not even, this isn't even criticism. It's not even criticism, but I, I actually do think that the YouTubers deliberately framed the videos to sort of disguise that fact. I'd like to sort of make this seem like their access was a little bit more exclusive than it actually was, that they weren't all just in a big hands-on room by them, you know, with each other. Right. Right. Um. And so they didn't get more than like minutes with the phone, which is partly why their videos seemed so shallow. It right. Because, well, of course they were shallow. They, they, you know, they had the phone for like, I don't know, half an hour, or an hour or something. And to answer people's questions, like a couple of podcasts this week said like, well, even if you were going to go with YouTube, YouTubers, uh, why, why in the world wouldn't you have like uh, MKBHD or iJustine or some of the ones who are, you know, the top tier ones? And that's because uh, those like iJustine and, and MKBHD, they were at the event in September and they were at the regular hands-on area. And uh, I'm guessing got seated. I don't know. If, yeah, I'm guessing that they got well a couple a couple of these a couple of these youtubers were at the event in in oh, were they? Uh, September also oh, yeah really? a couple of them referenced it uh i think but i think the thing is is that is that those the youtubers you just referenced they're on the same they're in the same audience as the verge so they're right. in the same audience as 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 you they're in the same audience as techcrunch and i think this was clearly an attempt to reach a new and different audience yeah. and it was probably also a bit of an experiment and so that that was a reason to maybe do uh, a different a different set of a, a relative audience speaking smaller set uh, than than maybe they'll do in the future. Maybe in the future they will really blow out the sort of YouTube thing and spread it out broadly. And again, I think I think it's a great idea. But I think we both you know we're on the same page. It, it would have made so much more sense to have it be additive yep. as opposed to subtractive. Like it's not like they're short on units. Right. I mean, I mean that's a that's a, a broader story too. I mean they're making they're clearly making more of these than I think you know people people expected in general, but it, that would never affect the number of review units anyway. Like it's not, if there, if there's a difference between like 15 review units and 30 review units, you, you, they're not actually producing a phone because that's, that's not right. a, I mean, Apple is at such scale. Like that's right. not a, a concern. Ever. Even if, and we now know that since pre-orders went out, uh, that they had millions of millions of phones, certainly far more than the quote one or 2 million that, uh, Ming-Chi quote quoted, uh, you know, there's no question that there are more than one or two million iPhones at launch, uh, and they're doing pretty well. Like they're still, you know, even now as we record, they still. If you ordered a phone right now as we speak, you still could get a, a December ship date. And a lot of the people who had uh, mid-November and December ship dates have since gotten uh, updates that their ship date has moved up. So they're, you know, they're doing well, but even in a worst case scenario, like <laughs> there's no way that they, <laughs> they only had, they couldn't get 30, <laughs> 30 phones and had to settle for 15, <laughs> you know, like they're, 
polished gemstones being like there's one guy one guy right. in, in the on the assembly line who knows how to put these things together and he's spending all day making them like a handmade watch <laughs> yeah no, it, i mean the scale is the scale is so hard to comprehend i mean it, it, i know you've it, it's funny like i guess it's one thing that i almost took for granted because i know you you've written and noted uh in the last few weeks about the fact that these decisions had to be made in november and i guess i I, I, of course, they had to be made in November. I mean, they are making tens of millions of phones, and I, like I, you sometimes see these weird comments where I'm like, "Oh, I, it took Apple six months to copy Samsung on this." Like, no, like if any two features happen simultaneously on two phones within like a year, and that's pushing it, then they were decisions made independently, right. separately of, of each other. And the the other thing though to note is it, clearly there is. The reporting wasn't that said. The reporting wasn't wrong. The iPhone 10 is clearly supply constrained. You can tell by looking at Apple's results because if you if you go through their results and you measure and you presume if you look back, what, what what's the expectations for iPad? What's the expectations for the Mac? What's the expectations for their wearables division? What's the expectations for services? And you take that out and you subtract that. To, to me, I'm predicting those categories will be about $25.6 billion in revenue next quarter. So if you take $25.6 billion away from the, the what they're predicting in total revenue, that actually that, that the, the amount that's left for the phones is like about sixty billion, and that either means that ASP is going down, or it means that their units are going to be down, and and that suggests that dem- there's going to be excess demand that's not being met by supply yeah. because unless you believe that units is going to fall significantly or that ASP is going to fall, which given the fact they're selling much more expensive phones, it, that seems highly unlikely to say the least. Right, like like. Uh, Unit for unit, comparing this year's iPhone 8 and 8 Plus models to last year's iPhone 7 models, the prices have come down a little bit. You know, so if you wanted a 256, uh, I've, uh, 256 gig iPhone 7 Plus last year, it was actually a little bit more expensive than the iPhone 8 Plus with the maximum storage this year, but not by much. But the uh, like thirty bucks, yeah. Or something. But like the idea yeah. that the i the eleven hundred forty nine and nine ninety nine. Uh, uh, iPhone 10 aren't going to raise the ASP. It seems a little nutty. I think it. it well, also the 64 gigabyte iPhone 8 is more expensive. Yes, it's fifty dollars more because expensive. last year's so, was thirty two, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Right. No, 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 not just that. No, I think it was sixty four, but it started at six forty nine. Oh. this year it starts at six ninety nine. Oh, so and the, the other thing driving this, this is kind of an, an interesting point. Apple's uh, memory prices have exploded in the last in the last year or so. Uh, I mean, actually, the company that's really killing it right now is Samsung. And, and a few years ago, and, and I wrote about this at the time, Samsung clearly pivoted, uh, not pivoted, but as Samsung's always been the best at at components, and and they've been the best by just sheer force of will and massive investment. Where they that's how they leapfrog Sony and build it in memory and stuff like that. And and then they and the other Japanese companies, and then they they just they used all the revenue that was throwing off these operations to invest more and more and more to always kind of be on the cutting edge. And when a few years ago, when you know the their smartphones were really starting to. Uh, hit the rough, the sort of rough, rough patch that they did. They made a 
kind of queer decision to we're going to double down on components again. And they made this, they built this massive factory, uh, a couple of massive factories, uh, one, the OLED screens and two, the uh, on memory. And it is paying off yeah. in a massive way right now. I mean, they, they are so profitable right now. And do you see they're charging Apple like 150 bucks per OLED screen or something like that? I did not see and, that. And so, but I did see, yeah, I saw, I saw a couple of pieces though, that the consensus seems almost unanimous that Samsung makes more profit on an iPhone or at least on an iPhone 10 than they make on their own high-end phones yeah i, I mean I, I i don't I, i'm not sure about that but i, I w- it wouldn't surprise me uh but yeah they're charging uh i gotta find this here uh yeah there's a, i'll send you the links so you can put it in the show yeah. notes or you could put it in the show notes yourself <laughs> you could. I, yes, I could. You could. <laughs> so, so Apple is charging Apple $110 per unit for the OLED display. Samsung is charging that, Apple. Yeah, and this is the IHS estimates, which Tim Cook says, oh, those aren't right. But I mean, yeah. this is the best thing we have. So th- there, there's, it says they're, Apple's paying 110 units for a display, whereas for the 8 Plus, they, they're paying $50 a unit yeah. and, and with, for the regular uh, LCD display. And it also has internal charges, like Samsung charges themselves internally $85 for screen. So they're basically, they're, they're make, Apple's paying like a $25 premium just because Samsung's the only company that can produce screens to the quality to the quality Apple wants. And so they really have them over a barrel here. So what's interesting is if these numbers are correct, correct, these IHS numbers, uh, Apple, even though the iPhone 10 is starts at a thousand dollars, Apple's margin on a percentage basis is actually less on the iPhone 10 than it is in the iPhone eight. So it's not, yes, it's it's more expensive and they get more revenue, but it's not a pure cash grab. Like they, to maintain their margins, they literally had to charge a thousand dollars for the phone. Yeah. Apple emphasized, uh, in my briefing and I saw it in parroted in a bunch of the reviews I read. So it was obviously something that they mentioned in every single briefing for everybody who got a review unit of the iPhone that the OLED display in the iPhone 10 is not a Samsung design. It is entirely from beginning to end an Apple design that Samsung just manufactures. It is the equivalent in displays to the A11 chip in CPUs where nobody else has a display like this. Now, whether it's as much uh, far ahead as of competing products as the A11 is versus like the high-end Snapdragon chips, I don't think that's true. It seems to me like like there's a case to be made, and that that display mate guy. Uh, you, do you know, are you familiar with that guy? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, is this guy Dr. Raymond? Somebody uh, display mate. You go to displaymate.com. Uh, <laughs> you can just go to displaymate.com and see why I'm. A little exasperated here. Um, I find his website to be a bit of a jumble to read. <laughs> Which is uh, ironic. But he does reviews of, uh, you know, displays. And uh, seems like he really is on the up and up insofar as that, uh, unlike DxO, the company that rates cameras, uh, and also coincidentally offers their services for consulting to the makers of smartphone cameras and uh, may or may not give better reviews and higher priority reviews to uh, those who hire them. Uh, this guy doesn't seem to do anything like that. There doesn't seem to be any kind of shakedown to get a rating from him. He just, I don't know what else he does. He might be a consultant in some way, but 
you know, anyway, he, he, his review of the iPhone X display or iPhone 10 display, I should say was glowing and he called it the best display ever made. Uh, and has all sorts of technical reasons for showing and proving, you know, not just like, Oh, it looks better, but like putting them under electron microscope and measuring the actual knit units coming out of the display ways that are measurable and objective that it's a better display. Right, that, that's totally fine, and I believe Apple that it that it is their design. But, but it's funny that they mention manufacturing be- competency is is a very right. real thing. Oh, right. and it's a very real thing in a in a in a. It's interesting because people get so focused on Apple strategy, where Apple sells differentiated products that people will pay a premium for. But that that's like not the only viable strategy, right? I mean, one is just is to have a superior cost structure, which 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 Samsung does in their manufacturing components, where they're at such scale and they're so far ahead in their processes relative to other companies that they can just produce this stuff cheaper than everyone else, which means if they sell stuff at the same price as everyone else, their their margins are actually much greater. It's like it's like the Apple strategy flipped over on its head. And in the case of OLED displays, what seems to be the case is not only does Samsung have their usual sort of scale and cost structure advantages, the actual pure capability of making the screen to Apple specification, they're the only ones that can do it. Yep. And so yeah. uh, and they're, they are profiting very nicely from that. And, and you know, it is so... I, 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 it's probably not purely coincidental. It's just instructive, I suppose, because I think the reasons that Google decided to do what they did weren't coincident. I think it was because they wanted they they knew that I that Apple was moving to OLED with their flagship phone and wanted to stay there. Um, so they moved the the their the new Pixel twos both have OLED displays, and the smaller one has a Sam a Samsung OLED display, and the larger one has an LG display, and the LG display is literally a, a disaster. Like it, it, <laughs> it has a horrible color shifting, and it suffers from uh, image retention after about a week of use, or at least on some units. So there's a lot yeah, of problems it, there, and it just is funny. What I'm saying though is it just shows that. Uh, LG's OLED capa- manufacturing capabilities are not anywhere close to Samsung's. That you really, it, it, it's the proof that to me is the proof that Samsung is the only company of capable of producing, manufacturing, whatever you want to say, the displays up to Apple's uh, standards. Yeah, and this is why Apple is is spending, you know, spends tons and tons of money to help basically help other companies build off this capability. Like so Apple played a big role in acquiring Toshiba's memory unit for example right. because uh, it, they want to build that up so there's more supply in the market so they can pay more because their scale is so massive that they'll do these multi-billion dollar investments where they're practically giving money to suppliers to build up their capabilities so that Apple can then in return buy more stuff from them but but at a lower sort of unit unit cost. If you think about it, if Apple sells uh like what's 100 what 100 million iPhone iPhone 10s and that premium is is really $60 like that article says, I mean that's like that's just a huge that's what 100 100 million times 60 that's 66 uh, six billion dollars like it, it pays off right. to to bring on these suppliers online and it's a really great example of why yeah do you remember there was a story probably about 10 years ago where apple had locked in a long-term price on memory uh, yep. uh memory chips and lo and behold the prices shot up and because apple had signed this long-term contract you know uh I guess more or less in anticipation that for some reason, you know, somewhere within that Apple supply chain and 
you know, the Tim Cook's, you know, um, uh, operating division, they figured out, you know, that it, either it was going to happen or it was likely enough to happen that it would be worth making the bet to lock the prices in now. And it was, I think it was mostly for iPods. I think the chips. Yeah, well, that's why, that's why, that's probably why they knew to make the decision. Because right. Apple was going to be the primary driver of memory demand. Like, I think they right. understood how much iPod is going to grow, is going to engender competitors. But yeah, it was, it's one of the all time great business deals. Like, it's, yeah. it, I mean, it's, uh, I think Apple sort of people follow the company closely remember it, but broadly speaking, I mean, it's it's it it is a deal that was worth billions of dollars in profit. Even right. it wasn't earned by again, it wasn't earned by driving up revenue. Right. It was earned on the opposite side by by limiting costs. But that doesn't make it at the end of the line from a bottom line perspective. It it was just as impactful. And however hard other companies found it to make competing media players with the iPod once that they were priced out of the memory market, it was almost like they couldn't like, it wasn't even whatever product marketing and branding and design and the lack of an iTunes interface to get music onto the device, you know, that, uh, they just couldn't even price the chips competitively. Right. Well, they, they, they didn't even have a cost advantage. Like you would right. hope that at least if you're going to build a, a quote unquote inferior product, you could at least make it cheaper, but but they couldn't. And this is a this is a long standing advantage of Apple in general. I mean, we, you've talked about how the scale of the iPhone makes it challenging to bring new technologies to market because you have to be able to produce it in the you know tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, within a year, and that that's really really hard. On the flip side, though, Apple can get to a a a position where they have so much leverage over over component prices and 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 I mean because all the investments that goes into these lines to say build out the capability to make a particular sort of component or to build out the capability to to like with the unibody thing like there was this report about they they had a prototype machine that could make it but they couldn't figure out how to manufacture it so Apple basically bought every prototype machine in the world so it put it on the assembly line or that that may be a bit apocryphal but the idea is why could they do that because they they're selling so many units that they can spread out that capital investment over over that many more units and that gives them a a genuine price ad, uh, advantage a cost advantage relative to their competition even though they're also selling the most expensive phone so it, it, i mean scale is just so impactful on on both sides of the equation i remember some sort of story about uh southwest airlines having an advantage on uh, like about a decade or so ago or longer where they had somehow made some kind of fuel hedging uh, bet where they locked in long-term fuel prices before fuel went up for the rest of the airlines and Southwest got then got thereby got away with charging insanely lower airfares for a couple of years versus anybody, even other discount quote unquote discount carriers. Yeah. But I think I believe, I, I believe that is right. But I think the same thing happened, but opposite a few years ago when fuel prices dropped mm. And I, I think it was Southwest, but it was one yeah. airline was locked into higher yeah. prices. It might have been, might have and, been. Uh, and, and so what, what goes around comes around. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's definitely difficult. I had a thought. I was going to say a couple of minutes ago when we were talking about the review embargoes, and I had been thinking for a while, if they wanted to come out, like let's have the, have the real reviews, the in-depth reviews come out Tuesday morning, but they wanted Monday to start with these uh, just to build up enthusiasm and have, and, and reach a new audience, have these, you know, YouTube hands-on, uh, you know, quick takes. 
why not? Why, why, why did they have to give the reviewers the phones the day before? Why couldn't they give us the phones a week before with the Tuesday embargo? Give us a week to write in-depth reviews and have these other reviews ship first. I, and right, I, exactly. Which would, which would be totally reasonable. All right, all right. I've had that thought in my head ever since this happened. Uh, I mean, it's... I, I've been, you know, for t- like ten days now. That's been my thought. And just well, well no, that's that's the problem. They they half-assed the vindictiveness. Right. Well, right. If you're going to actually be vindictive, don't give you a don't give people a review phone. Right. All right. To give them it twelve hours before is like you're you're giving them an opportunity to write a review before the embargo. It's just going to be a, a, a crappy review. Right. Like if you actually want to punish people, don't give them a review phone. If you're going to give them a review phone, then give them time time to use it. All right. Well, here's the thought though that just occurred to me about why they might not have done that. Now, vindictive, vindictiveness might be the entire explanation, but here's a thought. I believe, I can't, I can't name names, but I believe that there are uh, a few publications that have a policy that uh, if, if they agree to an embargo and any competing publication breaks the embargo, they will break the embargo immediately as well. And oh, so they wanted they didn't want to get handed out until after the YouTube reviews dropped. Right. Out of I wonder. I just wonder if Apple was concerned that some some of the I wouldn't have you know, but uh, I do wonder if other publications that let's say if they had had the phone for six days and they were gearing up to publish on Tuesday morning the seventh day, but these other reviews dropped Monday and they were all like, "What the hell?" That they would immediately finish up whatever they were working on and hit publish. To get them out the door, which wasn't yeah. what Apple wanted strategically. I would not be surprised if that had entered their mind. No, regardless, it'll be interesting to see what they do next time. I suspect it'll be different. I do wonder. I wonder. Um, all right, let me take another break and thank our next sponsor. I don't know if you've ever heard of this company, Ben. It's a company called Squarespace. Squarespace is the, the all- sponsor. Of the sponsor of the New York Knicks. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or bad. <laughs> well, I do have to say, I do have to say, uh, yeah, it was funny uh, when it when it happened because the NBA has, has advertising patches on their jersey this year, uh, which for the record I'm totally fine with. Uh, and the Bucks have Harley Davidson, which is kind of cool. But when it came out, I'm like, you know, po- you know, trying for podcasters everywhere, like this big podcast advertiser is now sponsoring an NBA team, right. and then it immediately occurred to me, but it's the New York Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to say the Knicks. I mean, the Knicks look good this year, uh-huh. I mean, and they they are exciting. Porzingis is amazing, so maybe it's because of Squarespace. So maybe Squarespace is Squarespace makes stars. That should be their their, their slogan. And you know, Madison Square Garden is for as long as the Knicks have been bad, or is are still arguably the palace of professional basketball, and it's certainly the one that has the most history left in it. Now that you know, like Boston Garden is closed, and the old LA Forum is is uh, Chicago Stadium. Yeah. Right. Anyway, Squarespace is your all in one. Uh, website, hosting, building, selling, anything you need to do with a website, you could do with Squarespace. Literally. You want to build a store, you have something to sell, you want to sell online, you could build your store with Squarespace. And you think, oh, well, that would have pain in the ass. That would be then I have to handle the, you know, the SSL cert or hook up a credit card processor or something. Nope. You can do all of that through Squarespace. They handle all the hard stuff. Um, all the easy stuff too, frankly. Um, you want to host a blog, you want to host a podcast, you could do that with Squarespace. You would uh, a designer, you want to build an online portfolio showing your work, you could do it with Squarespace. 
anything you want to do with a website, you can do with Squarespace. And you do not need to be a coding expert. If you don't know the difference between CSS and HTML, it doesn't matter. You won't need to know it. You could do it with Squarespace. If you do... If you do know CSS, if you do know how to how, how JavaScript works, you can, you have the ability as a technical user to get in there and modify stuff like that. So it doesn't it, it doesn't keep you from going under the hood, but you never need to go under the hood if you don't want to. It's that type of system. And they handle everything from domain name registration to choosing templates to modifying templates to the actual publishing and hosting of the site with a super high, high performance website. So Squarespace sites are super fast, super available. Uh, you never have to worry about the site going down or anything like that. Um, it, it really, the sites look so professional. Everything is so intuitive and easy to use. You would be surprised if you can't get it. I, I would be surprised if you can't get a new website pretty much ready to go within an hour, a couple of hours, uh, or at least convince yourself within an hour or two that this is the way to go to build your next website. So when you do decide to sign up, here's what you do. Make sure to use the offer code TALKSHOW. No, the just talk show. And what you'll get with that is 10% off your first purchase. And you could buy a whole year of service at once, save 10% off the whole year with that code, and then uh, you get a free domain name. So there you go. My thanks to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and uh, get started today. I had an extra. So there is one. I, oh, well, uh, you uh, uh, I, I, there, no, there is something that came up uh, earlier that that I think is really interesting, and and I've kind of hinted at it a couple times this week. But I'm, I, I think you agree, and I'm interested to kind of get your take on it. What, what's been really striking? It's kind of in the context of bugs, right? We have we talked about the calculator bug and, and stuff like that, and the various other flaws in Apple's in Apple's software and products that that are there and you can question are they more than before are they are they less than before i think there's probably always an aspect of the past always seems better than it actually was but there's also the aspect of apple's products are so much more complicated now particularly now that they have cloud components and stuff that more bugs and user interface problems are inherent and there's the issue of just a company getting bigger and larger and the old guard kind of retiring and going away that maybe the standards aren't aren't what they used to be uh, but what what's been so revelatory for me about the iPhone 10 is the fact that the iPhone 10 is far less perfect than the iPhone 7 was. Well, the, uh, all right, let's and, just, and, I know where you're going. Why don't we just read, I, I, I have it quoted in the notes. Do you want to read it or should I, should I read it? It's, it's an excerpt uh, you, from your daily update this week. Or do you want to do you want to start the preface before going? No, you can read it. You you, you can read it. It's fine. All right. This is a, 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 this is from one of Ben's daily updates this week to uh, subscribers of Stratechery, Stratechery, Stratechery. Stratechery, you had it. You I had it. it. After it. like ten episodes, Stratechery. There, there it goes. His uh, his wonderful subscription newsletter. All right, and I it. it all right, here's the quote. I'm going to read it. Uh, there is though a place beyond perfection, and I alluded to that in yesterday's article. Delight. I like cars and whiskey as an analogy. Often the perfect car or whiskey is, well, perfect. What makes the, sour, the, makes the soul sore, though, are imperfections. The car that stirs emotion, even though it breaks down constantly or rides too rough. The whiskey that is ever so slightly off or variable by bottle, but absolutely intrigues. To that end, what has been revelatory about the iPhone 10 is the fact that its imperfections are not the cause for frustration, but are rather 
casually tossed aside because the core experience is just so, well, fun. It is, dare I say, far more akin to the original iPhone than it is to the iterated perfection of the iPhone 7. There are rough edges, sure, but the rough edges exist not because of sloppiness, but because of ambition. And that makes them far more benign in experience than they perhaps deserve to be. I, I wish that I had written that. I, re, I mean, that's the highest compliment I can pay to it because I, I agree completely, including the analogies. Well, we've, we've actually discussed, I think, those, uh, particularly in terms of whiskey anyway, yeah. that, that exact idea. Because we, the, um, the context is, I think, was Japanese whiskeys, right? Where mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're so perfect. <laughs> and they, even down to the bottle, like they have a screw top. Like, yep. I'm sorry, but, but whiskey, like, it should have a screw top. It shouldn't have a cork that, uh, that disintegrates and then falls into the whiskey and then it's a pain in the rear end. Right. And it's only there for tradition. It doesn't actually add benefit unlike say like you know red wine or something like that. It has that. a questionable seal uh, I think compared to a screw top a tightly tightly attached screw top I to me tr- I trust to be more closer to 100% airtight than a corked top. Because right. if you make and whiskey a- ages whiskey ages in casks it doesn't right. age in bottles it's not it's not wine and it, to have a cap, to have a, a cork is yeah it's just, it's it's not as good. Yeah. Uh, I believe it's true of Japanese products in general. I think it's tr- certainly true. And, and again, the cars are the other one. I think Japanese cars are, I, 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 I don't even know if it's an opinion. I, th- I think it's almost, it's almost quantifiable by consumer product surveys. Far more reliable than, um, like, say, German cars. You know, that if you buy, a, uh, or American cars, or any other cars, you know, that... Well, for sure, American cars. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you buy a Lexus or an Acura or an Infiniti, you're going to get a more reliable car than a Mercedes or an Audi uh, or, or even a BMW. Uh, maybe even especially BMW. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Mercedes are more reliable. Than yeah, BMWs. Mercedes might be might be the the somewhat of an exception to that. Um, but you're also going to get a car that's probably less fun in certain ways and maybe sort of inspires less love or passion, if you will. And it's, it's, it's so hard to talk about because it's not really quantifiable. Right. Like how do you, how do you articulate the sort of thrill that comes like the first time you sort of mash down on like a BMW accelerator relative to relative to a Lexus, even though they, they may even accelerate the same speed. Like there's just, there's like, it, it was like, I, you almost feel stupid saying it, even though kind of broadly, we all kind of know it's, there's something there, but because it, it, it's so indefinable and, and hard to articulate, you feel dumb saying it, but it, but it's, it's a thing. I mean, if you act, if you bought cars based on feeds and speeds, as it were, based on, on on specs, and that includes reliability, includes all the other things. Well, the Japanese the Japanese are already fantastic and have fantastic businesses building cars, but they'd be even more dominant than they are. And right. and again, this isn't a this isn't a stereotypical thing. You just look at the numbers, look at look at the consumer reports, look at the sales numbers, and and but they're they don't have it all. They don't have the entire market. And, and, and why you know, not? And I would compare it directly. I mean, and, and I'm not trying to say it's on the same level. Um, but I think it's the same part of the brain and the same part of human psychology to uh, trying to explain how it is that you develop a crush on a significant other. What it is, you know, that it, it – uh, how do you explain it? How do you explain how it is when you fall head over heels in love with somebody and you find yourself uh, wildly attracted to them? 
and looking over looking over all the flaws. Right. Right. You know that. Um, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of us uh, aren't uh, going out with or married to a supermodel. You know, it's you know uh, that's just the way it is. But I, you know, we fall in love nonetheless, head over heels, wildly, passionately, can't obsessively in love. You can't explain it, really, and that's the way it is with some of these products. And I, you yeah, know, and, and, and again, the, the that reason, analogy to the whiskey is interesting too, because the Japanese whiskey, you and I both agree, is is arguably perfect. Or it, it, yeah, it's, Yama, Yamazaki, right? It, well, there's it's, it's like there, there, there's it's it's flawless. It's flawless, and it's always exactly the same. And you can't complain about any aspect to it. But there's something about like a wildly uh, uneven whiskey like a Lagavulin you know Lagavulin is like a whiskey like the, the guy at the gym who only works on his arms and doesn't work on his legs and he's got <laughs> toothpick legs and these crazy strong arms it's like that's what Lagavulin is like with the the peatiness uh it's like this is out of control like you, sometimes you wonder like like I remember the first time I had Lagavulin I was with Guy English it was of course who who introduced me to it and I honest to god my first sip I thought he was maybe I thought maybe this was like a gag you know what I mean like <laughs> Like he's been telling me, John, you got to go out. I'm going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to drink this. You're going to love it. And I took the first sip and I really thought that he was pulling my leg. I, I really did. <laughs> and then I fell in love with it. Yeah. I, I, this one I tried uh, earlier this year, uh, Buna, Buna Habain. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but same idea. Like every time I drink it, I feel like absolute shit the next morning. <laughs> there's, there's something about it. Like, and usually that comes from imperfections. Like it, that's what, that's the stuff that makes you uh, feel, feel unfortunate, but it, it's so like, there's, it's so, it, it's intriguing. Like they're, they're, it's so, it's so enjoyable. Like that feeling in your mouth in a way that like the, you know, the Yamazaki, which is my favorite whiskey just, just isn't. Uh, and, uh, no, and again, and what's so what's so intriguing about this though, and I actually like the the point you made about relationships and, and looking over flaws is the the fundamental problem with software in particular is there is always going to be flaws. Uh, I mean, there, it's it's this entire rickety sort of idea built on top of rickety foundations and this ricketiness all the way down you, where people are literally putting together these concepts in, in, and there's going to be bugs, there's going to be holes and there's going to be weird interactions. It's just going to happen all the time. And I mentioned earlier, the more complex this software gets, particularly starts interacting with the cloud and you're introducing tons of new variables, there's going to be problems. There's going to be imperfections. And the natural response to deal with imperfections is to try to get rid of them all. The, the problem is that it's an impossible job. It's, it's the pushing the, the rock up the hill. You're never going to get rid of all bugs. And what the, what the 10 has really reminded me of in a way that it's been easy to be down on Apple for bugs. And I thought Apple was supposed to be perfect and the integration hardware software, all that sort of stuff. What's been so striking to me about the 10 is th how that feeling of delight makes the bugs are still there, and the and the i ten does just have bugs. There's like literally legitimate sort of use issues around some of the things that that, that are that are challenging, but it just doesn't matter. Like it, it's fine. Like I I I it's I'm nearly a, you know a week in here, and I still feel delighted using this phone, mm -hmm. and it makes all those bugs like oh that's fine that's a bug, and it's. It, it, that's that's how you deal with bugs. You deal with bugs by putting people in such a good mood when they're using your product that they'll oh it's okay. I'm sure it'll get better.
<laughs> it's I, I really I feel like that's iPhone ten and iPhone eight and, and I really think it makes sense to me it, as the time goes on with iPhone ten in my hand and in my pocket, it 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 makes sense to me strategically why it debuted alongside the almost technically equivalent iPhone eight uh family. Uh, and I don't think like, like in the back of my head, ever since this, it became clear they were going to do this. I wondered whether it was sort of like, well, the iPhone 10 can be ready a year ahead of schedule. So here it is. And I know that there was talk of that with the interviews that like Panzerino and, and the others had that, you know, maybe originally it was sort of the 28, a 2018 product. Um, but why not cancel the iPhone eight instead? Um, and part of it is, is the number they could produce. But I think even if, if it were less, even much less uh, constrained, I still think it would have debuted alongside the iPhone eight. I think they needed to have a new product at a top tier at those price points, which they couldn't sell this one at, because like you said, just for example, the, the OLED screen is more than double the price. But I also think from a, a customer perspective and, and how, how do you deal with, a customer base that measures in the hundreds of millions like iPhone does. Uh, how do you move to something that's as, as much new and introduces as many imperfections as iPhone 10? Uh, I, I think it could paralyze most companies. I think it's, I think it's sort of, to me, it's sort of what happened to Microsoft with windows is that they, they got, they built such a massive user base of normal people who have not just no enthusiasm for radical changes to the experience, but uh, are outright hostile to the idea of major changes to the experience. Um, and so I really think strategically it makes sense that they introduced it alongside, again, an almost technically equivalent product with the same A11 processor, almost the same camera system, um, but an a, a, a a user experience that is like you, as you said, iteratively refined year after year after year from that original iPhone. Yeah, I th I completely agree. I and and I think your point about this gives them more permission to t make this sort of radical change, yep. if that makes sense, yeah. because you know what you're buying for, and you're paying more for it. So if you if you don't like the iPhone X's interface, it's like it's your own damn fault. You know what I right. mean? And there's this. We talked about this a few like when I was on the podcast previously in the context of Alexa and Siri, where. I I talked about the fact that yes yeah, Siri is trying to be more in depth and you can use natural language and they'll figure it out whereas Alexa is very prescriptive and formulaic and I I told you at the time and and maybe you've come around my position now is I actually think the Alexa approach is better in that when 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 Alexa doesn't work you as a user feel like it's your fault but it, it, not in a bad way not in I feel bad it's in a oh this cool interface isn't quite working I guess I did it wrong let me figure out and I'll, I'll do it again as opposed to Siri which way over promises and under delivers like there's, there's there's this aspect of like if you're going to be dealing with something that's going to be buggy and problematic it's almost better you, you don't want to say you're going to be great and then not be great because the expectations get all messed up whereas like my expectations for Alexa and Siri when it comes to like that sort of interaction are, are very different and it's it's fascinating that actually the, the technically superior product and, and I'm sorry Alexa is so much better 
better than Siri if you think about the technical aspects of accuracy and speed. Like it just blows it out of the water. But but even the fact that Siri is quote unquote more capable as far as like interpreting commands, that's actually a bad thing. And and to me, the iPhone 10 is the anti-Siri. Like Siri is the one tech product in my life that consistently makes me like enrages me not in a like like in a where it triggers that visceral reaction and it's usually when they it screws up and it says something cutesy it's like look just just screw up don't be cutesy about it you know what i mean and, and it makes the flaws worse whereas the iphone 10 by triggering the opposite emotion that emotion of oh this is so cool that that happiness emotion it it over it it, it smooths over the flaws in a way i'm willing to tolerate them in a way i don't tolerate them with siri at all so we could we could spend the rest of the show arguing about this and my typical way of arguing with you on this point is 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 to get technical or detailed and have specific examples and and tell you the times when i asked uh, alexa for uh, the betting line on a sports game and she couldn't do it and siri could and blah 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 but i think that your point and i'm listening to you and i think you have a point here where i think me arguing that would be talking right over your argument which is that if siri infuriates you and makes you angry and alexa doesn't it's all that's all the really the argument that there is you know, and I trust that you're given both an honest try and that you haven't just prejudged it, you know, because you're a homer for Amazon, which I, I can't see why anybody would ever think that you are. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't have any suspicion that you are. And therefore, I think that the point's already made. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's sort of like if you had a, a, you know, Brand X automobile, and I think Brand X automobiles are are terrible because they're supposed they're always breaking down everybody i know has one is has to get it fixed twice a year and you're telling me how much you love it it doesn't mean that you're wrong right you still might love it it you know the emotional as reaction these products give us are should be considered part of the experience if not the maybe the primary part of the experience yeah, I mean, I, I previously I've always had the technical argument with you, where I think that you have to measure these services again based on accuracy and speed. Uh, and whereas, like getting a specific answer wrong, that's almost more a function of did they bother to pro program that in or not, or has you know, has the algorithm sort of figured it out? And, and I think, but that's easy to see. It's easy to see. Oh, Siri screwed up this answer. Well, okay, that's fine. I'm more concerned that Siri took two seconds to respond, whereas Alexa took half a second, if that makes sense. And the fact that you know Alexa always understands me. But you're right. The part, the argument I'm making now is actually a step beyond that. When Alexa gets something wrong, she just she's just like. Uh, uh, I can't do that, or I don't know, or it's very short and brief, and it's like, and she, it's very straightforward. It's like, I don't know how to do that, or I, I, I don't get that. Or if I say Alexa, I, we use it for the lights all the time. Alexa, turn off the living room, and it says okay, and then the lights don't turn off. Like it's like, then I just say it again. Alexa, turn off the living room, and it's annoying, but whatever. I, I quickly forget about it. Whereas Siri's like, Siri, please do this. Like. Oh, don't forget. Well, setting a timer, right? Siri, set a timer for one minute. Okay, I set a timer for two minutes. Remember, a watched pot never boils. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some crap like that. And it's like, it's like if you had just screwed up, it would have been okay. Or if you, but if, the fa if you tell Siri to cancel a timer, she'll be like, okay, but don't forget. Oh, I know. Oh, it's, it, it, it is infuriating, especially because when I, whenever I tell Siri to cancel a timer, it's usually because Siri screwed up setting the timer in the first place. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's almost like, and I think, but I can understand why Apple did this because it, it's like 
it's a high risk, high reward game. Like the iPhone 10 is a big risk and in reaching for delight. And I think it's queer to see that series cutesy answers is a reach for delight. Right. The problem is if it goes wrong, it goes really wrong in a way that a sort of more sort of like functional utilitarian approach does not. And I think the, the balance is and where Apple screw this up is you take that approach, you take that high risk approach of reaching for a delightful experience you have it works much better in something where you control almost every aspect and you can ensure it's great. And that's what I was getting at this week about the the hardware and software integration still matters because Apple controls so much about the iPhone 10. They can get it far enough down the competency curve that the delight can take over. And the problem with Siri is not that Apple doesn't control the pieces, it's that the inherent to cloud services because there's so many variables, there's so many things going on, they can never control it sufficiently to deliver the level of experience such that it delights it, like it, it can only be bad it, it, it's either it's either good enough or it's bad whereas whereas when they control everything it can be good enough or it can be great and and i think for apple wanting to draw that distinction about when they should go for it when they should go for delight versus when they should seek to be competent like that gets at sort of the, the challenges the differences between services and between products uh that's a great point uh i think part of the delight in the iphone 10 is the thoughtfulness, quality, implementation of the animations. Um, yes. No, that, yes, that's exactly it. It's not like I talk about Face ID, but no, I, I, I just want I, – sorry. You, you go first, and I, well, I, I already completely agree with you. I, I, I can't even articulate it. I, I don't have – you know, there's, there's fade-in and fade-out animations for bounces and stuff. I, I think – you know, I'm not uh, – I have to, like, look up that lingo. But just, you know, what accelerates when you pull it down at what rate when you, when you pull up – on the notifications and you like, you only see the most recent one and you just pull up on the screen a little bit to see the earlier today section and just the way that they fade in. Um, certainly the way the big one, I, I it, and it's essential to the, to the interface of getting rid of the, 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 the essential button, the home button and replacing it with this swipe up gesture on a home indicator. Every single thing you do with that animation is just perfect. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised to find out that they could improve it even further on what I thought was perfect. It was in fact, you know, could still be improved further, but uh, it just feels perfect. It just seems so right. The way that the difference between flipping up quickly to go back to the home screen and flipping up slowly to go to the card interface for switching every aspect of it and the haptic feedback that you get when you get to the, uh, the card switching mode, it, there, I, I don't know. I, I didn't read no, the. It, it, you're, this is the whole thing. You can't articulate it. You can right. only feel it, right? Yeah, and I, this I don't. Is, I don't know what is. I don't know what is actually superior hardware and what is uh, it, just good timing on the software part. Like for example, like I said, when you get to the card interface, when you're swiping up, you're in an app, you're in Safari, and you pull up a little bit to the card interface. There's this tiny little bit of haptic feedback, and it's. It, it's so little that I didn't even I didn't really even think about it for like a day or two after I had the phone. I'm playing with it and it like I'm looking. I, I was so visually obsessed with it. I didn't really think about that bit of haptic feedback. And then once I thought about it and kept playing it with it over and again, it's just the just the right amount. And it just feels like it, it. It just feels like an essential part of that experience. 
And I don't so know I, I, if there's a better, more fine-grained haptic engine, haptic engine, whatever they call it, in this phone, or if they've just, it's the same as in the iPhone 8, and it just, it, they were just using it in a way that is perfectly timed in software. But either way, it's, you know, it's the experience that matters, and it's perfect. So I have, I have a small point and a big point. The, the small point is Apple's demos of multitasking are really bad. It, yes. it, it took me a while to figure out how to do, how to do it. What it. All you have to do is to exit the app, you just swipe up and your thumb naturally leaves the screen. To enter multitasking, just hold your thumb on the screen. Right. And, 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 and so it's the exact same motion. You don't have to change do this weird like rotational thumb gesture that they suggest in their videos. You just hold up and keep your thumb on the screen. And then you, what happens is you feel that haptic feedback you're referring to. And the moment you feel the haptic feedback, you're now in the card interface. You can let go your thumb. Yeah. And it becomes like once you figure out how to do it, it's super natural. But it, it, it's almost like Apple's demos actually let them down here. And, and it, it, it works out very well. That, 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 that's a small point. The large point is what this bit about the, like the responsiveness of touch has to be so utterly perfect on this phone for it to work. Mm. The only way the interface works is that the, the, the response is just, it has to absolutely nail it. And even little stuff like I have reachability enabled where you have to swipe on like the bottom, like portion of the bar on the bottom, which sounds really complicated, but I do it flawlessly every time. Like the, the level of accuracy and responsiveness is just, it has to be perfect. And you think back, what's the number one thing that drives, I, I buy a new Android phone every year. What's the number one thing that drives me absolutely batty about Android? And has from the day Android came out to the latest Pixel phone. It's uh, the responsiveness of yeah. touch. Yeah, it's yeah, the responsiveness yeah. and, and particularly scrolling and these sort of gestures. Yeah. And it's it's infinitesimal, but you feel it just in the normal interface. And like <laughs> it's it's very difficult. I'm sure someone on Android is going to build Face ID. Like that that's going to happen. And I'm sure it will work fine. I'm sure it will probably be Samsung. Like Samsung is a very capable company. But to to deliver this sort of interface in a way that is not frustrating, but is actively fun is actively delightful. We're just literally just using this phone is fun. Like that's really something that only Apple Apple can do. And, and, it's, again, it's been so revelatory. Like when they're in a situation where they can control it all, their strengths can so come to the forefront in, in a way that 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 when we thought, I, I suspect, I mentioned about looking backwards and it was it seemed so wonderful. I suspect it never really was wonderful. We were just so delighted at the time that we overlooked a, a huge ton of bugs. And over the last couple of years, as the experience has kind of stagnated, those bugs have become so much more central in sort of like your experience of using the phone, not because they're necessarily more or worse, although they might be, but just because what, what else is going on? Yeah. And, and the, the joyfulness of this gestural interface, um, to me, again, to draw that connection to the original iPhone is the modern equivalent of the, the GUI. The, well, yeah, the, 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 no, but the textured, I'm trying to avoid the S word, but I'll just say it. The skeuomorphic elements of the the original iPhone interface, the the leather for the calendar, the three dimensional shading and coloring of the buttons, just you know the texture and the the depth within an app, um, just had a playfulness and a joyfulness to them. Of oh my god, look at how beautiful this is! Right, it's this uh, the hardware was this incredibly stark you know, glass, steel, aluminum um, thing with this software that was so, you know, 
lickable, you know, with these buttons that glowed blue and, and had 3D texture and stuff. To me, this gestural thing is the equivalent of that with the, you know, post iOS 7 interface. And almost makes me think if that was part of the inspiration for the iOS 7 redesign, that they wanted to go to more of a, you know, put the joy in a different aspect of it. Like I'm not yeah, saying that this would I don't, be. I don't know that they made, they, but when you think about it, that's when they add in more of these sort of like swipe to right. go to to uh, or yeah, I, I could see that, but it, they didn't really deliver on it until right. until this. Do you find yourself switching between apps just by swiping left and right on the home indicator? So that's one of my complaints. Okay. Uh, so the, the problem I have with it is. If you switch quickly, then it's actually left and right. So you right. go left to the previous app and then right to the app you were in. If you delay more than five seconds or so in the app you switch to, then your previous app is now to the left of where you are. Yeah. So if, spatially, it's very problematic. Like yeah. I, I, I can see the challenge. Like I would prefer that they're always in the same places so I know where I am at all times. But at the same time, if you pick up the phone later, like it's kind of weird if you're in the middle of the stack, you're not at the very front of it. It's weird. But the if, fact it's weird if most recently used is not not on top. Or or right, right, it, right most if you if you prefer. But the problem is is that it should be either one they need a bigger like it, it's just weird that literally 10 second after 10 seconds the placement of your previously used app will be different. So if you're if does that make sense? So if you're in an app yes. and then you swipe left and immediately swipe right, you go back to your original app. If you're in an app and you swipe left and you wait 5 to 10 seconds and then you try to swipe right, the app's gone. It, it's actually now to the left of that app if if that makes sense. Yeah, and and the, if you think about it, it actually what they've implemented on iPhone 10 for the switching is although it left to right is flipped, it's exactly like command tab switching where when you open command tab and just keep holding down the command button and that's you see the switcher and you can switch and go to the fourth app, the fifth app, the sixth app and it's selected, but you still haven't let go of the command key. You can add the shift key to do a shift command tab and it goes to the left one. Like if you right. overshoot and that's the logic of what they've done. So if you swipe from left to right on the home indicator to go to the most recent second swipe, 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 swipe to get to the fourth most recent app, but you realize you've overshot by one, you can swipe the other way and go back to the one that you just overshot. But once you wait, just like letting go of the command key and command tab switching, it resets and whatever you just selected becomes the new leftmost app, most recently used app. But the way, the reason that it, that, so logically it works like command tab switching, but the reason that nobody complains about command tab switching and the reason why I agree with you that the way this works is problematic is that command tab switching is completely visual. You see yep. the whole command tab switcher while you're command tab switching. And then the command tab switcher, once you've made a selection and let go of all the keys, it goes away and you understand that at that point, it's been reset and whatever you just selected is leftmost. Whereas when you're swiping left and right, you don't really get like an overview like that to give you a, a visual sense of, of what the current order is and when that order is going to switch. Yep, that's 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 exactly right. I I think my I would probably prefer they go back to the previous version where it's just like it, it's always the same order or not always the same order, but whatever app you're in is always the rightmost app. Like I just think conceptually, even though 
it's it's very neat when you're switching back and forth to go left and right, and you it feels very visceral and very like because you're in a spatial sort of frame, right? It's like the original Mac OS, like yeah. it's very spatially oriented. The problem is the that transition to okay, you're no longer in a spatial place you're in a like list place it's just it's too it's too hard to keep track of where you are in your head i would prefer to standardize even if it's even if the that one use case is not as good as it could be but to have it always be that left is previous app whatever that whatever that might might have been yeah i do find myself uh using it a lot though but i find myself most happy when i'm switching to what i know was my most recently used app like two or three apps, you know, within that switcher. And then for anything more than that, I, 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 my instinct, right. I I feel like the habit I have to get out of, if if I want to fish a not quite recently used app, but I know it's in there somewhere. I got to get my train myself to go to that switcher where you can see them as opposed to just swiping on the thing at the bottom. But do you, do you hear what you just said, though? I, I can't let go of the Alexa Siri argument. Okay. You said you're going to train yourself to do it. And, and if you think about it, objectively, why, w- why would you ask your user to train themselves? That sounds very, you know, like you should make it easy for them, very simple, et cetera. And that's the sort of like that, that's, that, that makes sense at a sort of basic level. But what, this is what's so great with the iPhone X. You are going to train yourself. Right. Like if that sounds terrible, but you don't feel bad about that, right? You, you're, you're like, oh, I'll, I'll figure this out. Well, and, and to me, that's, that's, a great place to, right. that's, a, that's a great place to be from a product where your users are putting in work to figure out your product, right. but it doesn't feel like work to them. It feels right. like something that, that uh, this is what I'll do. Yeah, and I don't, you know, it's mostly about, I feel like, trying to figure out the way that I'm supposed to use the system um, instead of fighting. And my favorite analogy to this is Mac OS X, the switch from classic Mac OS to Mac OS X was so humongous from the user interface perspective. And so many things that used to work one way now worked another. And I honestly believe, even to this and day... You and, you and Syracuse have lost your mind. Well, we didn't. I don't think either of us lost our mind, but a lot of people, I think, who are less analytical than Syracuse and I are, uh, lost their minds. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I, I could go down the list, but I think that Syracuse and I could win every single argument about the ways that classic Mac OS had a better system wide interface than Mac OS 10. Um, but the, here, here's my point, though. My point, though, is even though I believed that that was true and and there was a whole cottage industry in the early days of Mac OS X of, you know, we used to call it utilities, taxis, you know, at low level right, system right. hacks that hacked the system to make things more like Mac OS 9. And you could get the window shade and you could, you know, where it used to be where you double click the top of a window and everything but the the title bar of the window would disappear. So you could quickly go to something underneath it and then double-click that, that window again, you know, a window shade. The whole window would just zap up into the top bar, and Mac OS X got rid of that. Well, there was a Haxi that could restore it. And it, you could get down the list, dozens and dozens of, of things. Um, uh, my colleague, at, I was at Barebone Software at the time, Steve Kalkworf, who was it felt as strong, strongly as I did about a lot of these things about Mac OS 9, said, if you really want to be happy with Mac OS 10, the way you want, and he used to work at Apple, he worked at Apple and left for Barebones. And, uh, but his, his argument was, you should try to at least, at least use it long enough to figure out how they want you to use it before you start adding the hacks. Don't just look at it and in an hour add as many hacksies as you can to go back to what you're familiar with. Use it as it ships, as they intend you to use it, and try to figure out 
And again, it's not like something that typical user is going to do is try to figure out how software designers at Apple meant to you to use it. But if you're the type of person who can do that, you should try to figure out how it's supposed to be used and then make up your mind later. And a lot of times and over the years, you know, I, I at least I, I, you know, found that it was better to stop fighting, the, fighting it and go in, even if I thought it was the wrong decision. Yeah, because there's so much about about software in general. This I mean, this applies to businesses where you know the very underlying underpinnings of OS X were so different from Mac OS, right. and and Mac OS was very much a sort of you know an integrated product in many respects, all from the, from the from the foundation of the software, not just hardware and software, but how the very operating system was put together, all the way up to the interface. And you know what was the big what was the big fundamental technical flaw with with, with OS with, with Mac OS, like unprotected memory, right? And all right. like all these applications were using the same shared memory space if one crash the whole thing would go down well if you think about it that was almost like the interface too right it was this really fully integrated right. sort of experience and os 10 if you think about the technical level it it, it, it was much <laughs> like separate processes and all these things were separated right. and different and it was much more there was more structure imposed on on it from a technical perspective and that actually happened in the interface as, as well there was a much more structure put around it and i actually think if anything the attempts to tack on Mac OS user interface conventions were some of the worst parts of early OS 10. Like OS 10 was so, and in part of this is I used to be a Windows user, so it was easier for me. OS 10 was so much better and enjoyable if you just embraced like opening the Finder and it's a folder view, as opposed to trying to preserve like spatialness, right? Because and why did that spatialness always fall apart? And I know you, this is one of the favorite complaints of both you and Syracuse. So it was like, you know, it's always different every time if you change this or change that. It was because they were trying to put on something that was fundamentally misaligned right. with the underlying right, I, structure I, I made that and, and hack it right it would have been oh, better yes, if they don't still your argument well like a 15 or 6 no yeah hey, about I've, a 15. I've, read, I've read almost everything I've read, I've read almost everything you've written it's inevitable no but that, my argument was that finder, if they wanted to have a browser file browser style interface then it should have been entirely a file browser and there shouldn't have been yeah. any attempt to mimic I agree with you um, but I think the same is true of, of iPhone 10 and I think it's why again to go back to my point from a couple minutes ago of why they're selling this alongside the familiar iPhone 8 I think a typical customer once this thing is out of supply constraints and you can just go into the Apple store and buy an iPhone 10 or any iPhone 8 you want in any color you want when you're you know your contracts up or your old phone broke and you come in and you say well I'm intrigued by this uh, iPhone 10 I've heard it's awesome and the salesperson you pick it up or maybe you know maybe the salesperson isn't there and you pick it up and you tap home and nothing happens and you're like what the hell and they're like oh yeah now you have to swipe and there's and you're like well how do you get to multitasking do you double tap down there and they're like oh no it's an all new thing you have to you know do the swipe and i think there's an awful lot of people and they're like well would they have to do that with iphone 8 and they're like nope iphone 8 acts, works exactly the way you're used to <laughs> i think that that person is like give me an iphone 8 <laughs> I it's really a do. really great point because because Apple's Apple's customer base is so large at this point. And the point I made previously is there's this famous sort of like framework from like a long time ago, but it's it's very well known in tech about called crossing the chasm, and this idea of there being sort of early adopters and 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 technical inclined people, and then there's a chasm which you get to the normal yeah. users and the laggards and stuff like that. And a point that I've always made is I think a mistake that's made in people applying this is 
to presume that only the people at the head of the curve want the expensive product. That's not necessarily that's not necessarily true. The people behind the curve aren't seeking to be cheap per se. They're seeking to not have problems. Like right. they, they they don't they don't want to deal with. They just want it to work. Right. right. It's, it's a phone. They just want it to function. And what I think something that's been underappreciated about what Apple has accomplished with the iPhone is for sure they have a huge portion of the early adopters. But if anything, that's where Android is the most competitive, particularly high end Android, right. because people th- those people like to fidget. They like all, they like to be able to adjust everything, have total control, and to have that sort of seamless integration with with Google services and all that sort sorts of things, which right. is which is genuine. I mean, Google using Google services is way better on an Android. That's by far the best thing about using an Android if you're if you're a regular Google user. <laughs> but Apple's also has this huge base in the in the sort of conventional user that just wants their phone to work. And and I think that's the point you're making is for that base, man, the iPhone 8 is a way better product than than the iPhone 10 is. Yep. I, I really do think so. I, I, I the the longer I've had this the more more I think that that's true. Um uh all right I want to thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Fracture. Fracture makes photo prints and they are thoughtful, unique gifts. You take photos, you have photos, they're all on your phone, they're in your iCloud account, they're they're all digital, digital, digital. You could take them, send them to Fracture, and they will print them directly on glass. Now, these guys have sponsored the show for a long time. You've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it again. These make fantastic gifts. This is maybe the best tip I'm going to give you your good friend, John Gruber at Daring Fireball. I'm going to give you this tip right now. Fracture prints make great gifts. Now, this show is being recorded on November 8th, probably air November 9th, November 10th, mid-November. Fracture has just, just sent me an update before this show was recorded where they literally say, this is a, the words from Fracture. We are experiencing some pretty high volume already for the holidays. So you may want to encourage folks to place their orders early to make sure they get them in time for the holidays. Um, I, I, I can't emphasize it enough. They can't keep up. These things are handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. source materials. They can't just up the volume in mid-December or maybe even early December to keep up with holiday demand. So you're going to kick yourself if you ignore me, if you're thinking, hey, my folks would love some pictures of the grandkids. My wife would love uh, uh, some photos of the dog. Uh, everybody in our family might love if I get some fracture prints of the great vacation we took last summer. Anything you could do to please the members of your family, your friends, uh, that you could do with a fracture print, go do it now. Take some time right now or tonight or tomorrow, but not. don't put it off. Don't put it off until later because you might end up too late for the holidays. And I'm telling you, these things are absolutely fantastic products, fantastic quality prints, and the ordering process could not be more simple. It's a simple, fun way to order a print, and everything you need comes in the package, ready to go out of the box. They even include the wall hanger. Also, you can feel good about this sort of purchase because Fracture is a green company operating a carbon-neutral factory. Um, visit Fracture, Fracture Me. No, I'm sorry, Fracture.me. Fracture.me and save 15% off your first Fracture order with exclusive code for this show. They've gone back to exclusive codes. Talk15. 
Don't forget to mention this podcast in our one question survey. It helps the support the show. So go to fracture.me and remember that code talk T A L K 15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. My thanks to Fracture. And again, I'm telling you right now, you will not be disappointed. This is a fabulous, fabulous gift. But you got to get your orders in. Uh, my thanks to Fracture. Ben, are you back? Oh, sorry. I had mute turned on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the benefit of everyone. I think we've covered the big picture on this well enough. I think we should get into some of our gripes about this phone and these imperfections that we alluded to before. I'm imagining that there are some people out there who don't have their iPhone 10 yet who've literally not paid attention to a word we've said in the last 45 to 50 minutes when we brought up the serious imperfections and we haven't really mentioned them yet. Well, we did, we did talk about the, the I think the multitasking isn't fully thought yeah. out in both both dimensions. So one, we already talked yeah. about that left-right swipe is kind of is kind of weird yeah. in that it, how it changes. I think that needs to be fixed. And then just even though I explained that getting to the cards is that swipe up and then you keep your finger on the screen, it's too slow. And it, I just find myself using multitasking far less than I did before. Like I'm back to the iPhone, close the app, open the app I want to go to sort, sort of thing. And that's it's a little frustrating because I was a massive, heavy sort of multitasking user before. Can I say this? That I, I think multitasking in general is one of those things where I, I think that iOS in particular, but even Android, I think that the touch-based mobile revolution has made personal computing so much more relevant to m more people around the world, whether they were felt, you know, thought that they were technically lost using Windows or Macs or whether they previously loved Windows or Macs, but even love this more. And the reason why you see things like, uh, uh, I, I think with Facebook in particular, you, it's like they don't even talk about the mobile desktop split because the desktop side is like irrelevant. It, it they could have, you know, they could only count the mobile use and that's all that matters. And it's not just because people have their phones with them. It's just, it's just better for most people. Most aspects of touch-based iOS and Android style computing, it's just cognitively better for most people. But the one thing that no mobile platform I think has gotten right yet is multitasking. And that's the one thing that desktop systems do get right. I, I just feel like the, the way you switch apps and the way you tell what's running and, and what's doing what and how do you get back to the other app is it, it, invisible on the Mac. And it's it, it has it's not just that they've changed it. It's had no aspect in iOS since they even had multitasking. Have they had gotten it right? Yeah, I mean, but but I I think it's actually but the thing is I I agree and it's also worse now like the, it that double click okay. and then immediately going to that card view because it, it, you get that visual component that you talked about in the terms of command tab and you get it really fast. The problem now is you either have the fast switching, which is the, the left right swipe, where you have no visual component and it's confusing. Or you can get the visual component, but it takes too long. It's just an action I find myself not doing very often because it just it, – it, 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 I mean, it takes too long. It's a matter of microseconds, but it's, it's meaningful. And, and maybe I will do more once I'm more used to the gesture, but I, 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 I'm actually – you kind of mentioned this before in, in terms of doing the iPhone X first. I'm actually super-duper interested in what iOS 12 is going to be like because – I think so much of the interface 
you know, needs to be rethought, not just because the screen size, because the plus has been around for a while. And I think there's changes that have been needed to be made for a while to accommodate that. But just in general, particularly this focus on gestures as the controlling element, uh, I'm really interested to see if that leads to a a sort of new overhaul in iOS. And it's funny because it's obviously a very deliberate choice on Apple's part to require a gesture, either just the swipe on the home indicator or the swipe up to go to the card interface, because they could have allowed you to double tap the indicator to get to multitasking mode Mm -hmm. in in a way. And I can kind of see why they didn't do that for the home screen, but I'm not quite sure why they didn't do it for getting to the multitasking switcher. And you can prove that it could be happened because every time you tap, just tap on the home indicator, it bounces a little so that it knows you're tapping on it. So you could just tap twice on it and see it do two very subtle little bounces. Um, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of agree with you that just to get to the card switcher, if I could double tap on that little capsule, it might be better. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, never, I never noticed a little bounce, but it's a good point. I'm going to predict <laughs> that you're not happy about the change in control center's trigger location. Oh man! Like I, I, I was, I, I, I mean, this was a talk about fulfilling expectations. I was already very perturbed when I heard the news because so I use. I, it's funny. I, <laughs> I tweeted about this about a left being a, a person. I worded the tweet very carefully. I'm said. I said I am a person who uses the iPhone with my left hand, and the reason I did that is because I knew I'd get an outpouring of of solidarity from people who are actually left-handed like oh us poor left-handed users and i did say i'm actually right-handed so i i hear about your pain but i can't empathize but in this one case i totally get it i use the iphone with my left hand and i used to use control center all the time uh particularly i mean i just use it constantly it's, it's one of my most used things on the phone by far and it is utterly and completely unusable now i mean yes and people are like oh you can trigger reachability and then swipe down like that's a ridiculous gesture i have to do this little gesture on the bottom and this reach across the top to bring down yeah uh control center is a big problem sorry that was a very that was a very unstructured complaint because i because i feel so strongly about how bad it is um i'm a right-handed iphone user when i'm using it one-handed and even i have to i generally i often have to re-grip the phone meaning you know shimmy up the phone Shimmy up yep. the phone so my thumb can get there, and as as you know, you know, you. I mean, I, I I'm not hu- a, a humongous human being, but I'm six foot two, and if anything, I I have slightly larger than average fingers, if not hands. Um, we should I should ask our, our friend of the show, Craig Hockenberry, whether he's able to one handedly reach uh, control center at all times. But should ask Bill DeBlasio. Yeah, I should have. I wonder if he had an iPhone. Um, so the, 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 well, the other thing that is a little frustrating about the whole control center thing is the control center is a very narrow part of the top. Like it's only that top yeah. ear, whereas right. the rest of the top is, uh, is the notification. And I, I, I just don't bring up notifications when I'm in the – I love notifications. And actually this gets another complaint we'll get to in a moment. I like notifications on the lock screen. It's one of my favorite things uh, or I, I, I just use it all the time. Yeah. But the the fact that notifications it dominates the top of the screen and control center is very small. When I use control center, way maybe I'm just alone in this. I mean, Apple has Apple has these sorts of numbers. They know how much particular things are used. But it just seems weird that that's only that little bit. And even if it had to be at the top, if you could make control center larger and switch to the left side, it would be it would definitely be be more tolerable. 
to answer what I know is a very frequently asked question because I get asked it on Twitter and, and stuff like that for people who, who are still on the fence about their iPhone 10 or have their iPhone 10 pre-order still in the uh, uh, pending mode. And so they haven't used it uh, is that the, the notch is a touch target. So for anything you can do at the top of the screen, like the tap at the top of the screen to scroll up to the top of any scroll view, uh, you can do that by just tapping the notch. You don't have to tap one of the ears to do that. And to pull down for notification center, you can do it right from the middle, and it works because the notch, even though it's not a display area, is a a tappable area. Um, and so the way that it's divided is that it's the notch plus the left ear is where you can scroll down for tap, you know, pull down to get notification center. And it's that right ear where you can get control center. And, and the thinking clearly, I mean, I haven't spoken to the person who made this decision, but it's very obvious to me that the thinking behind it is that it makes, they, they convince themselves it makes sense because that's the place where the little icons for Wi-Fi and yourself strength and your battery life are like so those are the little control center you know those are parts of control center like turning on wi-fi and turning on cellular networking um and so you know i think and you know there's a little you know there's even a little battery button in control center where you can uh, turn on low power mode so that's their thinking is oh well that's where the little things that you the, the the few things from control center that live in the status bar permanently are up in the top right. So that's where you pull down to do it. I, 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 it doesn't feel like it makes sense to me. It feels arbitrary. And to me, it's because both things, it doesn't feel to me like you're pulling down on the Wi-Fi icon to get there. It just feels like it just pops into place. It doesn't, it it doesn't, it doesn't slide down like, which is, which is very weird. It, 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 it feels like an edge gesture, not a tap on this element of the screen gesture. So the fact that those elements of the screen happen to be in the top, right, don't really, it don't really affect my sensibility of this. And of all the habits that I've had to change to get used to iPhone 10, the single one that I, I'm still making now, let me think about this, uh, nine days in the one that I still can't break is swiping up from the bottom on the lock screen to get control center. For some reason, when I, if I'm actually in the phone and, and using an app and I want to get to control center, I'm more likely to remember I have to do it from the top right. But when I want to just turn on the flashlight or, well, I guess the flashlight you can get from that button now, but something in control center, um, I t- turning off Wi-Fi. that's one because I was, uh, like when I was on the train, I didn't want the Amtrak Wi-Fi that I was already connected to. I wanted to just use the cellular networking, which should be faster. Um, on from the lock screen, I, I, I can't stop pulling up from the bottom, which instead takes me to the home screen. <laughs> Because it unlocks with Face ID. Yeah, no, that, it, it, it's clear that they didn't know where to put it. Like, if you think about it, they ran out of edges. This cor- yeah, they ran right. out of edges. It's stuck in the corner. The animation's wrong. Like, just everything about it is wrong. And it, it, and I, I'm hopeful. I mean, I don't. I, I'm I'm not a product designer at Apple, so I don't know where they sh- what they should do with it. But it is a clear sort of like step backwards in functionality, and it's actively not better. <laughs> right. And what I mean from running out of edges is from the top, you get notification center. And or at least everywhere but the lock screen. Um, but they can't have the lock screen control center be somewhere else than it is in the interface. You pull in from the left edge, you get the, I think they call it today view where you have all your widgets. And if you yeah. swipe in from the right side, you jump to the camera. And so there was, there's no edge left 
to just devote to it. I don't know. Yeah. I tend to think maybe what they could have done is swipe in from the right edge and have that work anywhere. But then you, there's things like when you're swiping on a row in mail and you want to get those little buttons to archive, flag, and delete and stuff. I, I don't well, know. On the home screen, it doesn't work either because no. you're, I mean, well, switch. they could get they could get rid of the camera swipe and just have that button for camera accessing the camera. Uh, which camera swipe? Oh, from the home screen, when you swipe from the right, you jump right to the camera. I mean, not the home uh, screen. Oh, you're right. Home screen. screen, you couldn't do it. Right. right. Yeah. I know the home screen is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I was mixing yeah, so up home screen and lock screen. I actually didn't. I, I didn't know that about the lock screen that you could swipe in the camera. I. I. Because there's a button there, so I assumed you had to press the button. No. Yes, that's worked for years, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I knew that. I, no, oh, I, no, I knew that. You didn't know that's they funny. still had it in ten. You didn't know. Right. They exactly. Didn't yeah, I, and it's funny. I I never even thought. Well, you know why though? Because I always watch the camera from from Control Center. Like it just a habit. Mm. Uh, and so yeah, which I mean, it's funny. I just don't. Yeah, it's it's that that one's very frustrating. The other thing that kind of goes with this. Um, oh, so I, we should talk about Face ID. So Face yep. ID is it's incredible. Like it, it works. It, it works, and when it works well, it's amazing. And that bit I put in my article where. A notification just says you have a notification, yep. and then when you look at it, the notification expands to say what the notification actually is, so that no, so like you get this additional layer of privacy for your notifications, which which has always been a sort of a hangup, right? Because it's better to have your notifications say something, but at the same time, you've practically compromised all your like, for example, two-factor identification uh, for those barbaric services like Twitter or whatever, where you still have to use SMS. Like it would literally pop up on your notifications what the what the number is, <laughs> so like which is no good. And so right. the um and so that's that's a great it's great right. like you, it's an it's an additional layer of privacy that you didn't even realize was lacking and now it's there and right. it's it's incredible. It's the be- it's computing at its best. So for anybody who bends a little quip there, it's a perfect example. But if if that blew right past you, imagine somebody steals your phone and they're trying to change your Twitter password, but they can't unlock your phone. They could go to twitter.com and and do something that triggers it. Uh, well, yeah, it, you know, and let's say they stole your password too, and they want to change it. Basically, anything uh, that uses SMS. That if you're using yeah. SMS for for right. instead of an app, which you should use an app, but some services still you have to use SMS. Right. Uh, as long as they have your phone in your hand, they they don't have to unlock it. The text message that comes with the code, they you need the six digit code you need to type in. It just shows up. <laughs> On the lock screen, in the default, you could turn that off. In the old, you know, on the iPhone 8 and the earlier phones, you can turn that off. Most people but, surely don't know you can turn that off, and there's a and reason why. And you're losing, you're losing all the benefit of the notification screen, which is you can quickly right. see all the notifications right. that you got. Right. And even, even the fraction of a second where it takes the notifications to change from being private to unfurling to show you the details of it, it's it's fast enough where it's not annoying, and the fact that you see it happen adds to the joy. It's like, oh yeah, my happy little iPhone knows who knows who I am, and trust me. So so that's amazing. So Face ID and it works well. And the other thing about Face, face ID that's that's just spectacular is Face ID in apps. So for me, like One Password is a great example of this, where it used to be if you have you know, if you go you could open One Password, you have to put in. You had to put in your password or touch ID, and then you open a specific account. You also have to do it. I mean, you can tr- again something you can turn off, but if you want a higher level of of, of sort of protection, uh, and in this case, it just happens because you don't have to do the. Even though it's literally just putting your thumb on the sensor, it requires some degree of active thought. And what's so different about Face ID relative to Touch ID is that sort of active, that explicit action is eliminated. 
It's mm. the same thing is happening, but it's totally implicit. It's happening without you even knowing about it. And it's, it's just a great experience. Yeah. I'm, and this is one where the people who've been using an iPhone, uh, seven plus, uh, or when did the two camera system come in? I guess with the six uh, plus success, success plus, uh, the people who've been in the plus club for a while are like, Hey dummy, that's why we've been telling you to get a, get a plus the, uh, the camera, the pictures that I got over this last weekend with the telephoto lens and portrait mode, um, some of them in telephoto. I just shot portrait mode a lot of the time, even when it, when it wasn't technically a portrait, um, for shooting human subjects, are just phenomenal. And I was I was on a weekend trip with my dad. My dad's turning eighty later this year, and so I took him on a trip uh, as an early birthday present with my brother in law, and uh, we had an absolute great weekend. Um, we actually, we actually, did I tell you this? We took him to see, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. My dad's also like me as a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'd never seen a game in person in Dallas, which by the, which by the way is, is a good thing for you to reveal because it puts your Dallas Cowboys fandom in a little more favorable light. Uh, still, still not completely favorable, but, but a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, but it was a beautiful weekend in Dallas, a little hot. Uh, we got there Friday, the game was Sunday. Um, we had a, just a fantastic time. It's a beautiful city. I'd never been there before. We had a great time. I, and I thought before I left, should I take a real camera or not? This is a once-in-a-lifetime trip. Well, it doesn't have to be. We could go back. But, you know, first time we went trip. I'm going to want good pictures. I would be willing to lug around the real camera, you know, on a strap or, or in my pocket uh, all day. Um, but I thought, you know what? I trust the iPhone ten. And honest to God, the pictures I took, they, they're, they're as good as the pictures I take with my $2,500 uh, uh, Canon kit, which is a, is a huge camera uh, and a huge, huge 50-millimeter uh, f1.2 lens. Or my beloved and honestly more used than my Canon in recent years, uh, Fuji X100S, which is a great camera. And I know is technically better and is still, I, I even know in certain ways, is better, a lot better than the iPhone 10. But the, my keepers, the photos, like the 20 or 30 really great photos I got out of this are indistinguishable from the pictures I get out of those cameras. It's, it's truly phenomenal. And having that telephoto lens to, to get that, that truly uh, natural perspective where it's not wide angle and it's not super zoomed in and flattened, uh, it's, it's just one of my favorite uh, focal lengths. Re yeah, it makes the most difference for humans by far. Like, yep. yeah, you could, because it doesn't just change, and people who aren't photographers may not, may not appreciate it. It doesn't just, yeah, you could zoom in on a 20 millimeter lens, lens but the, like, the face is going to be flatter. Like, there's, there's, yep. like, you're going to get less definition just by virtue of it. But the reason, the reason though, not to, not to go backwards, but the reason why I praise Face ID is because there are also parts of using Face ID that's very frustrating. Okay, what's frustrating? So one example is in this, there's a little bit of the watchy aspect to this where with the watch, like that having to raise to wake, if you're not, if, when you're standing, it's perfectly acceptable. But if you're in different positions, like laying on the couch or in, in bed or whatever, to have to m move your arm to wake it up or reach over and press a button 
is it's a pain. It's really annoying, and you get that with Face ID sometimes. Like it, it, the the rise to the the rise to wake where the screen just turns on and Face ID is triggered and it's it's scanning for your face. It, if you're standing up or sitting up, it works great. It doesn't always work if you're in a prone position, uh, sh- shall we say? And so you, you 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 can work around it. You can reach over and press the button, or you can purposely flip the phone. But it's adding in this layer of annoyance that was not there with or or in the car, for example. The car is a great example where. Um, you have to you have to reach over and press the button again at a stoplight. Not saying you're moving or anything, but if it's in a, like a holder, there's an aspect where it, it, there's much more friction than there was previously. The, the other thing too is with the it it, it it works almost all the time, but if you're like uh, in the dark, I've had a little bit more mixed experience and. Uh, and particularly like early in the morning or something like that, my alarm goes off and I'm reaching over and I, I grab it or whatever it might be or, or wait at night and where it just, it sometimes just doesn't go and you're not sure why and that it does happen. Uh, I, I found it only happens in, in sort of when it's dark, but yeah. it, for, in my experience, it, it, Particularly just like in bed. I know I shouldn't be using my phone in my bed. But basically, <laughs> bed is I, where my problems are, which is <laughs> don't take that quote out of context. But <laughs> I, that's where most of the frustration has come for me. I've th- found the same thing. Uh, first thing in the morning, at least two of the days since I've used this, Face ID didn't work for me while I was laying in bed. And I don't know how much of it is because I'm still laying and my face is sideways and the phone isn't oriented right. Um yeah, I think you, it was your face being smushed up doesn't work. And also, um, I, I'm, I'm also curious. I'm extremely nearsighted, so my eyes are just are really bad. And so when I don't have my contacts in, I hold the phone very close to my face. Right. And I think it's almost too close for Face ID. And so I pull it out, and then I almost wonder if I have the problem where my eyes, like, aren't focused enough because <laughs> I'm so blind that it's, like, it's not registering. the. I'm not sure what's going on. But for it's, it, it, it's interesting. I should weigh in bed with, like, contacts in, and I'm curious if it might work better if there's something to just the way i'm holding the phone to compensate for my terrible eyesight that is triggering these problems but it's definitely a a consistent sort of thing and then and then the problem is when you do encounter a problem you have to reach up and hit the side button like there's not that to have that button right there already under your thumb is like it's more Mm -hmm. effort to overcome a failure if that makes sense It, it rarely fails but when it does fail, the effort to overcome the failure is greater than 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 it was. I before. never use the side button. You don't find that the tap to screen is all you need. Um, does that? Oh, you, I didn't even know. I didn't didn't even realize. Ben, there you go. This made it worth appearing on the show. This is why they added this feature. They've added is it, a feature. Is, it, is it new? Is this new this year? It's new in the ten. It does not work on the iPhone eight either. And I don't know I if know. that's I don't know if it's because it's expensive and I don't know, but I'm telling you, it's a, it's a game changer, Ben. No, and it's like the watch. No, th- that is a game changer because that that yeah. actually solves a huge number of my issues. Because uh, yep. the other thing is with the notifications, the problem is when the notifications are up, I want them to unfurl. I don't want to swipe up. I want to stay on the notification swing. I may just I'm just so used to using an iPhone. I'm just I'm used to using that. I love that notification screen. I yep. love knowing everything that happened. Because again, I mentioned the whole messaging thing. Yep. Like that's the way you get a hold of me. So like basically everything I need to respond to always comes up to notifications. And I have email notifications totally turned off. So the problem is to swipe up, it dismisses the notifications. And then yes, I can reach up and bring them back down, but but particularly if I'm already in an app, all those notifications disappear from the list and then it's kind of a mess. So waking up the phone and making it do face ID without me having to swipe up and trigger face ID uh, is, has been a big problem. So that actually might fix it. Yeah. It's it, and the best way to think of it is exactly like to watch. It's like, it's like a, there might be some other examples, but it's like a watchism that has come to, to iPhone 10, but it's only on the 10 
And I've gotten used to it because I, I don't know where, I don't know if it stuck out to me in the keynote or what. I think it maybe it, it stuck out to me during Schiller's bit in the keynote where I was like, you know, I've had that thought before where once I got used to the watch, I, I was like, why can't I wake my phone that way? Why, why, why can't I just tap the screen if the watch can do it? And so I was intrigued by it and had it in mind. And so I've been using it ever since they gave me the iPhone 10. But anybody out there who's in the same boat as Ben, I'm telling you, it's a game changer. You don't need that side button. Yeah, I, I, the situation in the car in particular, I can see that being really useful. Yeah, yeah just, just tap the screen. Just yeah, tap the and, screen. And you'll get it. Uh, I found Apple Pay. I have found Apple Pay so far to be, eh, it's fine. I, if anything, I think I like it better. I was at Trader Joe's today, and uh, uh, at some stores, you know, at some stores, it's like you can do the Face ID, or not the Face ID, the, the Apple Pay. You can do it while they're still ringing you up. You know what I mean? Like, let's say you, mm-hmm. you've bought 15 items and once they start scanning it, you could just do your do your transaction. You know, even if you're using a credit card, you could like run the credit card in advance to get it ready. And then, you you know, uh, at Trader Joe's, their their POS system seems like it, it only allows you to even do it once it is final. But I since I was doing it while he was doing I double clicked the side button to put it into the mode. And then once he was done and beep, it was the total, um, it was already, it was already recognized. Cause I was like looking at the phone in front of the thing. Like it's, it, I don't know, for some reason it seemed to me like an awful lot of the, the face ID skeptics were anticipating that Apple pay in particular would be way less, uh, ergonomic. And I'm, I'm not finding that to be the case at all. Yeah, I was worried about that. I haven't used it yet, but but I've heard the same thing from folks. And the other thing, too, actually... is that it, it, it unifies the language, the design language with the watch, where the watch you initiate the same way by double-clicking the side button yep. to put it into the mode. Um, and I actually think that that's like a good bit of the old-fashioned Apple... Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, when like things are like... Consistency. Alignment, consideration. No, consistency. Yeah. Consistency yeah. was the word that sort of went out the window in, in some of the years of Apple. Well, uh, and, and, and is one of the more frustrations, I think, with their software, like where different yes. apps just have stuff yeah. in different places. Or yeah. uh, uh, Frederico Vitici put, put something on, I'm sorry, I forgot the name wrong, uh, on Twitter today, where inconsistent capitalization in the App Store. Like, I mean, it's like stuff mm. like that. And that's sort of the frustration of being a big company. Like, you either, like, yeah. you, you either care about that or you don't, and it's frustrating. But that's when the you sort see of examples. Of, that's of the sort of thing that old old Apple, like '90s era Apple, never got wrong. Like, yep. There, but but on the other hand, that was a much smaller surface area. There were fewer things to to make sure yep. were were title cased similarly. One other thing I really like about about this transition to the iPhone 10 relative to the iPhone 6 in particular is I I really like how 10 handles old apps. Uh, I, and maybe this is because people are like, oh, old apps look so bad on the iPhone 10. I actually think they're totally fine. It just looks like a normal iPhone. And the critical thing is that the keyboard position with old apps is the exact same as the keyboard position with new apps. And yep. so people complain about this sort of, like, why is the keyboard higher up? And I think a big part of that is avoiding that bottom part. So if you hit space, you don't accidentally close the app. But yep. I also suspect they wanted to unify that because that was such a problem with, with the iPhone 6 transition because yep. you had different keyboards and different apps. And whereas here, it's 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 consistent. And it's, it's so much... I think this transition for apps is a million times better than the ones they've done previously. Yeah, it feels a little bit like wasted space, but I feel like ergonomically, it's right... And I've happened to hear from some people who, 
who would know why the keyboard is done the way it is. Uh, and it's exactly what you just said that, that having some separation between the space bar and the home indicator was actually important usability wise. And that testing proved it that people trying to get the home indicator were instead, you know, and swipe up or instead typing spaces and, or vice versa. And I yeah. think that I think you're exactly right that this transition with unup, unupdated apps is by far the easiest on the eyes. I, in fact, I sometimes don't even notice right away. I'm almost like, oh, oh, I guess this one's not updated. It just sort of, I, I you know, by far like the jump from well, the, Retina to rot, non-Retina was it was horrendous. Like un, un, non-Retina apps on a Retina iPhone four was immediate delete the app from my home screen. Didn't matter which app it was, yeah. it, I couldn't use it anymore. Um, the, I do have the, to run, but that reminds me. Of, oh, no. sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Well, I, the one when they when they first made the screen bigger and the apps just ran in the middle right. of the screen and the keyboard was <laughs> an inch higher. Well, not just that; it was different. The spacing right. between the keys was different. It was right. it was really hard. <laughs> the, but the, you, that reminds me. I think another reason why the the apps that aren't running work so well is because OLEDs it, like black is true black, right? Because it's right. it's it's not yeah. actually lit up the pixel, yeah. unlike unlike LCDs. The so two thoughts on that. Number one, uh, I, th- I wouldn't be surprised, and I hope iOS 12 uh, goes back to the original dark. Like, it's, it's a black interface. And apps that have dark mode, like Twitter, for example, has a dark mode, but it's very dark blue. It would, I, if you have a dark mode in your app, it should be black because mm-hmm. it just looks so much better than, than any other color uh, in my estimation. But yeah. number two, th- one more frustration – I know Apple has the best OLED screen in the industry. The the sh- the color shift still bothers me. Like you, yep. it's apparent yep. all the time. I'm sure it's it's better than the Pixel, but it's still there. And all the apps that have dark mode, I'm changing them just because I fi- I still find it distracting. And if anything. Uh, you can see it all the time, even if, yeah. even if you have the phone perfectly in front of your face. I, I don't know what the math is, but I'm going to say it's like a 40-degree angle. If you look at the app at anything at a 40-degree angle or more, everything on screen looks blue. And the lighter it is, the more pronounced it is. So black doesn't change at all, and white changes to a decidedly bluish tint. And it right, is... but but even if you have it, even if you have it tilted like fifteen degrees, the top of the the screen and the bottom of the screen have different hues. Like it's yeah. very very slight, right. but it, it's definitely different. And that's yeah. a, like the the full tilt's yeah. okay. Like yeah, that's that's, a, that's okay with me. That it's, is a good it's, point. It's that minor yeah. tilt that is really that is definitely uh, distracting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The white at the if you could just go to an app like Mail where it's mostly white, it it tilted a little. Yeah, you get white at the bottom and sort of a. Or white at the top and sort of blue at the bottom if it tilted away from you. Yeah, I agree. Right. OLED is not – it's a great screen overall, and I'm very happy, and I don't regret that they went with it. Um, but it is not a clear win across the board from the LCDs and the iPhone 8. Yep, I agree. I, I, I prefer I prefer the old ones, even though I know all the benefits of OLED. And yeah. I think what I th- that's why I think they're going to go with a much dark – with like a black interface in the future. Because really like black looks incredible. Like it, right. it, 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 it looks so good. Well, sort of like the way on Apple Watch, you can't really tell where the edge of the screen is. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, right. and so I have some apps that have a pure black mode, and they just and they look even the old ones that aren't updated. They they, they almost look they don't look they totally fit in because the top and bottom you can barely tell the seams right. at all. Uh, so anyhow, but I think that's one of those things. But this gets back at the sort of delight thing, just to take a full circle. Like all the all these little errors, the, the, it's okay. I, I I feel confident they're going to be fixed because. I'm still so I'm enjoying using this so yeah. much. It's it is all right, Ben. Thank you for so much for your time. Um, 
everybody can uh, uh, check out your work at stratechery.com. And there's a, a weekly or daily newsletter you can sign up for, which is one of my favorite reads every single day. And then on Twitter, you are at Ben Thompson. Uh, and also <laughs> at No Tech Ben, if you enjoyed the opening <laughs> minutes of uh, basketball talk. So the problem is I made No Tech Ben because I like to be very vociferous on Twitter. So so I want to be able to tweet like during a game and like be super annoying about it. The problem is so, like, some people like follow me. They're like, man, you don't shut up, do you? I'm like, that's why I made a separate account. You can't complain about my making a separate account. <laughs> I, I like If you want to complain about my main account, I get it. That's why I made a separate one. But for good Lord, like I, I'm already doing you a favor here. Yeah, I should register Jackass. John.